What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 locked. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 149, and we'll be talking about Stargate SG-1's episodes, Heroes, Part 1 and 2. And friends, we're an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. There's tiers and privileges, and Zach will tell us a little bit about that. But one of the privileges you get is some pod, uh, pod some Patreon first podcast content that we do. Uh, good friend of the show, quasi showrunner and executive producer David and Zach, they do the other side of the gate. There's spoilery things, there's thematic things, generally things that I shouldn't really be privy to because these are big conversations. So, uh, I seem to remember, Zach, that it, did you guys do a Death of Characters podcast at some point? Like, because if you haven't, maybe you should. And this, you know. um, I, I think so. I yeah. Think, yeah, I think we did that. Here's an example of one of the things that you probably talked about that I shouldn't have heard about <laughs> whenever you did it um <laughs> and i didn't so but uh but friends if you've already watched the whole series then you know we've got the other side of the gate there which is co- covering those thematic stuff for the whole show uh zach and i also do stargate second chances where based off of your votes we re-watch certain episodes and re-rank them and give our thoughts about that uh we've got a couple uh to do yet and we have recently discovered that the joy of doing that it is uh, not so much in the revisit, but also just looking at the show independently of the story arc at the time. So we both typically like to be completionists when we do things. We watch story, stories in order. But coming back to these certain episodes can kind of give them a bit of charm. So you can get access to that stuff right away. And then uh, the funsy one, um, it was a stretch goal that just keeps just keeps on happening. So uh, we have been watching Stargate Infinity, the animated non-canonical animated series from the early 2000s. Uh, we're watching an episode at a time and then giving our thoughts and our rankings about that. And uh, yeah, it's a hoot. All right. It's mm-hmm. it's a hoot. Um, but uh, yeah. So if you want to get access to that stuff, you can do that at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. And if you cannot or will not support us, which are both valid, you don't have to stress about there being secret secrets. Uh, we don't do that kind of stuff, but we do do the stuff Patreon first, and eventually we put it on our main feed whenever we want to take breaks or or the like. Uh, so if you have friends of yours who would like to listen to more stargate stuff, feel free to recommend our little project to them. Uh, they can find us on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts and on Spotify Podcasts, but they should really do it right. They should do it right. They should use the, the standard RSS way. Uh, go get a podcast aggregator and search for us and uh, just directly subscribe. And um, don't worry about trying to do it through the gates of some other organization. Just, 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 just do it directly. Just, just come right on up. It's fine. It's all good. And so, uh, so Zach, if yes. a person wants to let us know uh, that uh, they, uh, you know what? I think this is the first time that I'm stalling out and trying to figure out what the segue is. So if somebody wants to let us know that, uh, that, that I probably should write up some segues and put them in a notebook somewhere so that when I get to this point, I can just flip to it and be like, mm, let's see. No, not that one. No, not that one. Oh, this is a good one. So, Zach, if a person wants to know us what kind of fezzy, fuzzy beverage that they like to drink, how might they how might they do that? So, if you have a fuzzy beverage that you want to send us, then well, I guess send us the recipe at walkingthroughstargate.gmail.com. <laughs> Last time I checked, uh, things like that don't uh, digitize very well. But nor uh, should they be drank. I, I think I meant to say fizzy. 
I call I, I I call fizzy water fuzzy water, and I think that's what happened there. Ah, well, if your okay. drink is fuzzy, don't don't drink it. Probably. <laughs> if you have other segues, uh, <laughs> uh, neither Brent nor I have one, so feel free to send those to us. Uh, once we have confirmed that you are in fact sending us a segue, a real segue, then we will make sure we have appropriate addresses for you for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy okay. oh boy uh you can of course also go to uh twitter and start following us at stargate walking you can go to the facebook page walking through the stargate we also have a facebook group of the same name mm-hmm. you can go to our website which is wtts.space space and there you can get just a little bit of information about the podcast and such, and you can also get the link to the discords, and you can join us on the discords and have fun conversations there. Uh, there is a channel about memes from Stargate. Yep. There's mm-hmm. a spoilery channel. There's a mm-hmm. general channel. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, some non-Stargate stuff happening mm-hmm. there. So whatever it is, you have a place there. Um, and then... Uh, of course, the Patreon. You can go, go yep. to patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate and join us there for all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Brent. Yeah. Uh, it is, I think, that time when we delve in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> or these episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. It's time. All right, so the uh, a little bit of background. The director for this episode is Andy Makita. Mm-hmm. The teleplay is Robert Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy, this is his second and third directing credits this season. Of three, he did Space Race early on, and he is finished for the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a director, he, of course, does lots of stuff with other... I think he, I can't remember what he does. You know, I'm, I'm blanking. But he does other stuff. Lots of things. Show. Uh, Robert Cooper is one of the executive producers and showrunners at this point in time. Mm-hmm. This is his second and third of five writing credits this season. He did Fallen uh, at the very beginning of the season. He does have a story credit for Chimera uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he's got two more writing credits that he shares with Brad Wright later this season. So, uh, we have that. We have guest actors galore mm-hmm. and this yes. is gonna take a while yep uh we have of course have the uh one the only Terrell rothery who yep. plays dr janet frazier mm-hmm. um and uh, uh we get to say goodbye to her today uh sadly yeah we do have gary jones who plays sergeant walter radar harriman Her radar Davis. is of course from slash norman davis yeah uh, <laughs> uh at the, this point in time, even now, at this point in time, uh, they even though it is canonical that he's been called Walter as yes. a name, yes, uh, he doesn't actually have Harriman yet. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, I, I it, it was that Zoom that they did for the interview where you could just yep. clearly see his name badge. It was right there. Yep, Harriman Davis. Yep. Uh, we have Bill Dow playing Doctor Bill Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, um, and then of course we have Sergeant Siler, played by Dan Shea, um, and uh, that was fun to see. Yeah, and we get to welcome Ronnie Cox back in this episode yep, as right. Senator Robert Kinsey. Uh, and with that, now we delve into the new folks for this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I have these um, 
clumped together. So I'm going to start with Saul Rubendek, Rubendek yep. who plays Emmett Bregman. He's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the uh, uh, documentary director and leader of it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, here is his own mini biography of on course. IMDb. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Saul Rubinick was born in a refugee camp in Germany where his father ran a Yiddish repertory theater company. Saul started his professional career as a child actor in theater and radio in Canada. By the time he was 20, he was a member of the Stratford Shakespearean Festival Company in Stratford, Ontario. Been there. And later was a co-founder, actor, and director of Theatre Le Hibou, Theatre Passe Muralet, and I'm butchering these, and I'm sorry for that, <laughs> and Toronto Free Theatre. Uh-huh. Uh, he got his early training in film and television as an actor for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Saul started working in the United States as an actor at the Public Theater in New York. Rubinek's work on U.S. and Canadian television, film, and theater spans four decades. Mm-hmm. In 1997, Rubinek directed his first feature for Lionsgate based on the play he previously directed, Jerry and Tom. He also was a producer on the film in partnership with his wife, Eleanor Reed. The film was an official entry in competition at Sundance in 1998. He also directed the features Club Land in 2001, uh, Bleacher Bums also in 2001, uh, that was for Showtime and Paramount. Rubinek also directed, and his wife and partner, Eleanor Reed, produced the award-winning indie film Cruel But Necessary in 2005. Mm-hmm. Penguin Books published in 1987, Rubinek's non-fiction book So Many Miracles, an account of his parents' survival growing up in Poland during World War II. He wrote and produced an award-winning documentary in 1998 of the same title, So Many Miracles, for CBS and PBS, which chronicles his parents' reunion with the people who saved their lives during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The DVD of the documentary is available from the National Center for Jewish Film at Brandeis University. Rubinek wrote the play Terrible Advice, which was produced in 2011 in London by The Chocolate Factory, starring Scott Bakula, Andy Nyman, Carolyn Quentin, Sharon Horgan, and directed by Frank Oz. Mm -hmm. So, um... I know Saul Rubinek first from seeing him in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes. Uh, in the episode The Most Toys, which is a third or possibly fourth season episode. I'm blanking specifically on when. He played the character of Kivas Fajo, a collector of rare and unusual things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Data being a rare and unusual thing, he wanted to collect Data. Yep. Um, uh Interestingly, uh, Saul Rubinek was an emergency replacement for a different actor, David Rappaport, um, for the show. Rappaport apparently attempted suicide three days into filming the episode in 1990. Oh, oh dear. And they got Saul to come in and play that role, mm-hmm. um, which, um, oh my goodness, for one, yeah. this is new that I had never heard before, never mm-hmm. seen before. Um, and also, I have a hard time imagining anybody playing that role besides Saul. I mean, he has kind of a persona. Um, and, you know, that even showed through in this one. You know, and it's good. It works really, really well. Oh, yeah. He, he likes to play somebody who is 
grouchy and playful in their own way. Yep, that's right. Um, also, then later on, he uh, played Artie Nielsen in the TV show Warehouse 13, uh, which is a really great show, by the mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that? Have you ever no. seen any of it? Um, you know, I started watching Warehouse 13 uh, because Saul Rubinek was in it. I'm like, mm. that's him. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's Saul Rubinek. And uh, I think he does a tremendous job in this episode. Uh, he really sells the whole thing. Uh, his first IMDb credit came in 1968 in the movie Slow Run. He was the narrator. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have Tobias Slezik, uh, who plays Tech Sergeant Dale James, and he's mm-hmm. one of the film crew guys for the documentary. Yep. Uh, he is an actor and producer known for R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour. Uh, for Stargate SG-1 and Universe. I find it interesting that the mini-bio that's on IMDb uh, pulls out SG-1 and Universe, and it doesn't mention Atlantis, but he's also in an episode of Atlantis as well. Huh. All of these are different characters, of course. Yeah, uh, okay. But there you go. Yep. Um, his first IMDb credit uh, was in 2001 when he... Uh, was in two episodes in the soap opera Passions. Mm-hmm. Episode number number 1.432 and number 1.440. Okay. Probably season one, episode whatever. Yep. But who knows? So, uh, that is Tobias. We have Christopher Redman, who plays Airman Shep Wickenhouse. He's the other film crew member. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that Redmond was the one who predominantly held the microphone and Tobias was the one who carried the camera itself. Gotcha. To put those into... Um, Redmond uh, is a versatile film and television and theater actor born in Toronto, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had several recurring roles on shows like Reverie, God Friended Me, and Workin' Moms. Mm-hmm. I don't actually recognize any of those, nope, but that's okay. <laughs> um, he apparently began performing Shakespeare at the age of seven at various festivals throughout Canada. Oh, okay. And he went on to write comedy and perform in sketch and improvisation groups, including The Second City in Toronto, mm-hmm. before acting in numerous films and television series. His first IMDb credit came in the TV series Tales from the Crypt Keeper way back in 1993 he played he did the voice of Rockman in the episodes in the episode Gorilla's Paw there you go now that was his first IMDb credit mm-hmm. his second IMDb credit was in the TV series Kung Fu the Legend Continues <gasps> yes in 1994 he played the character Sam Lowry in the episode Temple so nice. we have another Kung Fu: The Legend can continues crossover. We haven't seen one of those in a while. No, we haven't. It's been, but, it's been, it's been, hasn't been happening very. Re- but there you go, the legend continues. Which is impressive because this is a relatively young guy, and the show yeah, is not that's right. a young show. No. Um, we now have Mitchell Kosterman, who plays Colonel Tom Rundell. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born and raised in British Columbia. He started his acting career in 1987. He is best known for his work on Smallville as Sheriff Ethan Miller. 
Yeah, he looks like a sheriff. Uh, and you can catch Mitch in the upcoming flick White Noise, starring Michael Keaton. Oh, nice. He has three children. So this is actually a mini biography by C.K. Okay. I don't know who C.K. is. <laughs> but uh, clearly it was written a long time ago. If you can say catch Mitch in the upcoming flick White Noise in 2005. Oh, boy. <laughs> yep. Back when What's the internet the- was young. Oh, yeah. Fresh. Uh, anyway, that movie stars Michael Keaton. Uh, Mitch has three children, Cassandra, Stewart, and Jack, and he likes to spend time with his family watching movies. And he also enjoys reading and writing, by the way. Okay. Uh, we actually have seen him before in Stargate. Oh. He played Special Agent James Hamner in the SG-1 episode Seth, way back in, I think, season wow. two. Wow. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yep. Oh, we see the guy. No, yeah, he was like one of the dude. Like they were on the road and looking at the camp. You know, yeah, he was binoculars. the ATF agent. Yeah, that's right. Yep. You know, and 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 uh, uh, O'Neill's like, my first order of business is get me one of those jackets. <laughs> and he's like, okay, fine. <laughs> you can have a jacket. Yep. Um, this episode here is actually one of his last IMDb credits. Hmm. Uh, this was a 2004 episode, and his last IMDb credit was 2006. Okay. All right. So I, I don't know what happened, if he just retired or whatnot, but, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, there you go. His first IMDb credit came in the TV series Unsub way back in 1989. Mm-hmm. He played the sheriff in episodes, uh, in the episodes. And the dead shall rise to condemn thee, parts one and two. Wow, that's a heavy title. It is. It is. So, that is our film crew. That's the first section. Yeah. Now we shift <laughs> gear to Stargate, uh, to SG-13. Yeah, yep. Uh, here we have Adam Baldwin, who plays yep. Colonel Dave Dixon. Yep. Um, Adam like Baldwin. hat, though. Is that what? Hat? That, the hat was wrong. He, he should have had a different hat. Well, you know. Um... He is an American actor who is from Illinois. He is known for playing Jane Cobb in Firefly mm-hmm. and Serenity. Mm-hmm. He played the voice, did the voice of Hal Jordan in various DC cartoons and games and Animal Mother from Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. He also acted in Independence Day, The Patriot, Predator 2, American Underdog, Superman, Doomsday, and Halo 3. Yeah. Wow. Um, lots of things. Um, he is... Also known for playing Noel Rohr in The X-Files and Colonel John Casey in the TV series Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I first came across his work in Firefly. Yep. That's where I first remember him. I was just uh, imagining that he had named his gun Vera. Uh, probably. probably. Vera 2, maybe. Yeah. Ma- maybe Vera Prime. It, I think it probably should be Vera Prime. Yep. Mm-hmm. Vera Prime. Yep. Yep. Um, his first IMDb credit came in 1980 in the movie My Bodyguard. He plays the character of Linderman. Okay. Yep. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, we have Julius Chapel. This is senior airman Simon Wells. This is uh, the young kid who nearly dies, who gets yep. shot in the back. Yep. Uh, he is an actor known for Stargate SG-1, Underworld Evolution, and Caprica. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of IMDb credits. Um, his first IMDb credit came in 1999 in the movie Road to Nowhere. He played the character of Jacob Berman. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we have Christopher Pierce, who plays Bosworth. And I realized that I wrote his last name, but I didn't write anything else about his, his character name. But this is the other guy who was right there next to Simon when he got shot. Yeah. Uh, he's an actor known for SG-1 and Atlantis uh, and the Tomorrow People. Uh, and we will actually see this character, Bosworth, again in a future episode of SG-1. Okay. All right. Nice. Now, that said, his Atlantis ep- character is a different character completely. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, so we don't see Bosworth in Atlantis, but we will see Bosworth again in, uh, at least minorly, in SG-1. Again, his first IMDb credit came in the movie Terror Firmer in 1999. He played the stockbroker in front of the library. Oh. It was an uncredited role. I see. I see. Move those stocks. I need to go to the library. That was Indeed. his line. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I need to research about ethical ways of making money because this is not it. Indeed. <laughs> and the fourth member of SG-13 is David James Lewis, uh-huh. who played Cameron Belinsky. Yep. Uh, David was born and raised in Vancouver. Uh, after high school, he was able to break into the film and TV scene that was exploding in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, he started out in commercials, and he eventually worked his way up to earning small roles in shows like X-Files, Stargate, and The Outer Limits. Mm-hmm. In 1999, he was the lead in Shoes Off, a short film that won the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Short Film. Nice. Uh, He is apparently best known to Canadians as the dad in a series of commercials for the telecommunications company Rogers and for TD Bank. Okay. So, uh, and we will actually see Cameron Belinsky again in a future episode of Stargate. So look for him. All right. His first IMDb credit came in 1983 in the TV movie Copper Mountain. He played the drummer in that. Mm-hmm. And when you figure that it was 1983, that means he would have been about six or maybe seven in that movie. He was a very young drummer. Very young drummer. Uh, we have Katie Wright, who plays Marcy Wells. We see her at the end of the second episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives and works in Vancouver, Canada. In her acting career, she has emphasized live performances. So she's done mostly theater work and not TV and movies. But that doesn't mean that she hasn't done TV and movies and such. Uh, She has played a number of leading roles in plays and musicals all across Canada. She is a co-founder of three professional companies in Vancouver, including Bard on the Beach, Mm -hmm. which just sounds cool. Um, (laughs) Oh, Bard as in a person that sings songs. Yes, I, I thought it was bard as in you're not allowed to hear anymore. Oh, no, no, no. Like like uh, William Shakespeare is a bard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, her first IMDb credit came in 1987 in the TV series 21 Jump Street, mm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. where she played Tammy in the episode Don't Stretch the Rainbow. Don't stretch it. Who, Don't who, do it. Who was um, Marcy Wells? That was uh, Simon's... Uh, oh, wife. Uh, wife, yeah. Yep. She had the baby in her hand. Yep. Uh, little baby Janet. Yep. 
Uh, Baby Janet doesn't get any credits. No. Sorry. Baby Janet didn't have any lines. No. And finally, we have the inimitable Robert Picardo. Yeah. Who plays Richard Woolsey. I was surprised to see him walk through that door. Uh, (laughs) I saw the title card, and I'm like, oh. And then I forgot about it. And then there he was. I'm like, whoa, right. Yep. So um, this is the... uh, uh, mini biography for Robert Picardo, written by A. Anonymous. Okay, funny, 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 funny. That was a bad person. It was real funny. Sorry. <laughs> They'll do better next time. <laughs> Robert Picardo was born on October twenty seventh, nineteen fifty three, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, where he spent his whole childhood. He graduated from the William Penn Charter School and attended Yale University. Hmm. At Yale, he landed a role in Leonard Bernstein's Mass, and at the age of 19, he played a leading role in the European premiere of Mass. Hmm. Uh, Incidentally, the Leonard Bernstein's Mass, while kind of weird in a lot of places, is a really, really good piece of music. Hmm. Um, That's my own little side. Anyway, continuing. Later... Picardo graduated with a bachelor's degree in drama from Yale University. He appeared in the David Mamet play Sexual Perversity in Chicago and mm. with Diane Keaton <laughs> in The Primary English Class. In 1977, yeah. he made his Broadway debut in the comedy hit Gemini with Danny Aiello and also appeared in Bernard Slade's tribute, Beyond Therapy, as well as Geniuses and The Normal Heart, mm-hmm. for which he won a Dramalogue Award. Then he became involved in television, where he soon was nominated for an Emmy Award for his role as Coach Cutlip on the series The Wonder Years. Oh, huh. Robert appeared in several other series, China Beach, Frasier, mm-hmm. Ally McBeal, mm-hmm. Home Improvement, mm-hmm. The Outer Limits, Sabri- and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Mm-hmm. In 1995, he got the role of the holodeck, the holographic doctor on Stargate, Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> yes. Whew. Where he also directed two episodes. Hmm. He also got roles in The Howling, Star 80, Get Crazy, Oh God You Devil, Inner Space, Munchies, Samantha, White Mile, Star Trek First Contact, mm-hmm. Small Soldiers, Looney Tunes, Back in Action, Quantum Quest, a cassette. A Cassini Space Odyssey, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next line said he resides in Los Angeles, California, with his wife and their two daughters. However, he's also divorced. So, uh, so this was written in 2005. No. <laughs> so yeah, um, he has nearly 250 different IMDb credits. Wow, that's and, a lot. Yeah, and a lot of them. Um, well, you know, plenty of them are just, you know, one-off movies or just a guest appearance in a show here or there, but a lot of them are multiple appearances or a, you know, either a starring role or a major guest role in series. Yeah. So, I mean, it's amazing. Um, and in case you were concerned, we will not, uh, have to wait terribly long to see Richard Woolsey again. Okay. Okay. Uh, in Ooh. fact, yeah, he will become a significant guest role in Stargate SG-1 moving forward. Okay. 
So then what is it with these Star Trek alums turning into like major NID agents? <laughs> what are they trying to tell us here? Uh, well, that's that's a good question. Um, we'll we'll have to learn more about that later. Okay. Because I, I can't talk about Richard Woolsey right now. No, no, no one can. I mean, we can talk about this episode, but but not not yes. everything else. Uh, anyway, Robert Picardo's first IMDb credit came in 1976 in the video Theater of the Absurd, Luigi Pirandello, Six Characters in Search of an Author. Okay. So Luigi uh, Pirandello is a playwright who wrote a play, Six Characters in Search of an Author. Mm. And Theater of the Sur- Abs- Theater of the Absurd is something, and I'm not certain exactly what, that uh, did uh, at least an adaptation or an abridgment of Luigi Pirandello's work for this in 1976. Gotcha. Okay. Nice. So that is uh, the guest actors in these Oof. two episodes. That's a, a lot. long list. Yes. I'm like, oh my goodness, this just list. I'm like, can I cut this person? Can I not talk about that? Oh no, I got the. No, I got to talk about that person too. Uh, No, I got to talk about that person too. So I just kept going. Just kept going. Um, The original air date for this episode was uh, February 13 and February 20 in 2004 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. In the U.K., it was February 3 and 10. Mm -hmm. Number one on the charts in the U.S. for uh, the 13th was. Uh, the Way You Move by Outcast, featuring Sleepy Brown. Okay, I don't remember. So we that. have another Outcast, but uh, not the same one that we were listening yeah. before. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then a week later, we have Slow Jams by Twista, featuring Kanye West and Jamie Foxx. I have no idea. This is definitely the era where I stopped paying attention to popular music. Ah, well, you know, join the club there. Yeah. Join the club. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., I'm sorry, in the U.K., uh, they were still listening to Take Me to the Clouds Above by LMC uh, in that first week. Yeah. And then in the second week, they stopped listening to that because that was a dumb song. It's only lasted two weeks. Who cares? We don't care about it anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe that's not true. But anyway, it was no longer number one. Number one was With a Little Help from My Friends by Sam and Mark. Okay. No idea. I have no idea. Do you think it's a cover? Do you think it's a cover of the song? You know? If I was a little help from my friends, possibly. What would you do if I sang you a song? Would you try to make movie puns work? I probably would try to make movie puns work, and I'd fail miserably. <laughs> hey, but you can get by a little help from your friends. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I don't. I don't recall you helping me there, Brent. Nope. <laughs> um, so here is somebody who clearly did not get any help from his friends. It's the one who went on 50 first dates. Or maybe oh. he got too much help from his friends. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? It's hard to say. What this guy needs is a miracle. Ooh, nice. Nice. Uh, and where do you get a miracle? You go to the barbershop, number two, okay. which is back in business. Okay. And there you got served your miracle. Okay. And all of this okay. comes about because of the butterfly effect. Clearly, somebody went back in time and fixed things <laughs> so that your miracle occurred. <laughs> Ah, and so hey, you go works. back on your 51st dates. Oh, that's good. Good. And good. after you're talking about your 51st oh, dates, you realize right. that you are actually a teenage drama queen 
And these are all the confessions of you as a teenage drama wow, queen. Wow, does this work? And as you're talking about your confessions, you talk about the miracle that happened. And where was that whole butterfly fleck thing? Well, it was apparently in Mooseport. And so as you're talking about this, you have to go, <laughs> welcome to Mooseport. And where is Mooseport? Well, in my little world, it's on a Euro trip. <laughs> you didn't need help at all, Zach. You just nailed that one. I'm impressed with myself. That was good. That was actually fantastic. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes it fails miserably. Sometimes it literally writes itself. That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. So what was happening at about this time in 2004? On February 10, Kanye West releases his debut album, The College Dropout, uh, that goes on to win the 2005 Grammy for Best Rap Album. Mm Mm-hmm. On February 12, the city of San Francisco, California, begins issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples in response to a directive from Mayor Gavin Newsom. Mm -hmm. On the 13th of February, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics discovers the universe's largest known diamond, a white dwarf dwarf star, BPM 37093. Wow, that's fun. That's not a small thing. No. No. On February 15th, we have the 46th annual Daytona 500. Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins exactly six years to the day after his father, Dale Earnhardt Sr., won his first and only Daytona 500 way back in 1998. Yeah, yeah. So, that's kind of cool. Yep. On February 16th, the Pittsburgh Penguins lose their 12th consecutive home game, which is an NHL record. Yeah, you'd never want to be on those those record lists. That's not the record you want to hold. No. No. Um, on February 19, the Nazi hunter, uh, he's a hunter of Nazis. Oh, yes. Okay. Just, just, just to be clear. Uh, Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, is awarded an honorary knighthood in recognition for a lifetime of service to humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also on February 19, Millie Bobby Brown, an English actress who uh, plays uh, Elle in uh, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also plays, um, there's a new movie uh, about... Enola Holmes, Shakespeare, or Shakespeare's, uh, Sherlock Holmes is like niece or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but she was born uh, on February 19, 2004. Oh, great. In in uh, Spain. Uh, have you seen Stranger Things? No. Uh, you should. There you go. There's a lot of things I should do. Yes. I know. I know. <laughs> um, and then on February 21st, the first European political party organization... The European Greens is established in Rome. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yep. Hmm. That's kind of so, neat. We do have uh, some trivia stuff about this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, this episode was not actually originally a two-part episode. Um, the original intent hmm. is this would be a second unit show that you could kind of film uh, in between other things that are happening through the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would focus on... Uh, Emmett Bregman and the film crew, and so you wouldn't have a whole lot of stuff from the other actors. You can pull them in as you need them. Um, 
However, uh, Andy Makita, uh, after finishing that episode, um, his first cut was like 65 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and that's too long. Yep. And uh, Robert Cooper went in and tried to trim it down, and he got it down to like 60 minutes mm-hmm. or 58 minutes or something goofy like that, which is still too long. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at this and like, you know what? We like what we have. This is good stuff, and we don't want to cut this. And they're like, well, let's add some more things and turn it into a two-parter episode. So the stuff from SG-13, uh, most of that was originally told uh, or experienced secondhand as the film crew gets pieces of information uh, trickled down to them. Okay, yeah. Uh, but in the expanded thing, then we actually get to see some of those things happen. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. And um, we get to welcome uh, Richard Woolsey as a part of this expansion uh, because he was not in the original. Gotcha. As well. Okay. Um, and so they extended some stuff. They shot some new things. So, like, the filming of this was, like, over, like, a two-month period of yeah. time. Yeah, Um This was, uh, well, we'll get to that. So, uh, Dr. Lee says to Emmett that it's okay, he does this all the time, right, when, when they're looking at t- testing that new armor for Sergeant Siler. Yeah. And, of course, that's a nice little uh, uh, in-joke because Dan Shea, Sergeant Siler, well, A, he's, like, always injured, on the show. Yes. And and B, he's actually the stunt coordinator. Yes. So he literally does do stunts like yes. this all the time. All the time. Yep. Um <clears throat> also the the guy who had the um fire extinguisher was also a professional stunt guy. Yeah. And trained in all of this stuff so that he was there to A put out the flames that are on Dan Shea's chest. Um but also, if it got bad, he'd be able to be there with that fire extinguisher to uh, really go to town and, yep. you know, save Shay's life. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um, Colonel Rundell in this episode is out of uniform. His mustache is out of regulation. Oh. That's a big no-no. Uh, you are allowed to have mustaches, but it needs to be short and trim and it can't go... Uh, onto your lip at all. It has to be above your lip the entire time. Uh, and so uh, no colonel in an actual Air Force, in the actual Air Force or anywhere else, would have um, uh, would have been okay Spoken with, bushy, with, uh, with that duster. kind of yeah. mustard, mustache there. Um, when Dr. Frazier is uh, being interviewed by Bregman and she talks about all the things that have happened to Colonel O'Neill over the years... Uh, she mentions that O'Neill has had three knee surgeries, um, and that was kind of snuck in there because Richard Dean Anderson actually, in fact, has had three knee surgeries. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, one of them was um, sh- uh, shortly before shooting the, the season six, uh, beginning of season six, he uh, tore his knee up when he tripped while carrying his daughter. Mm. Um and that actually played a role. I remember we talked about it. I can't remember the specifics anymore. Uh, but that played a role in some of the beginnings of season six, why he was not in very many other. Mm-hmm. So um, the uh, Gould probe that SG-13 encounters is, mm-hmm. of course, uh, does hold a striking resemblance to the probe droid of the Empire from Empire Strikes Back. Yes, it does. 
Um, and, you know, that was a very intentional little <laughs> homage. Um, yep. And the story of uh, the Vietnam War photographer Martin Krzysztofski and all of that, that was all fictitious. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, there is not an actual uh, Krzysztofski. Now, that said, that that story um, sounds like something that could have easily happened. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, here's a little interesting thing. Uh, Dr. Frazier dies in this episode, and there's a memorial for her. Mm-hmm. And one of the people that is mentioned this episode, but we don't see her in this, is Cassandra. Cassandra isn't at the memorial, uh, which is a little bit strange. I mean, it makes sense from a production standpoint, because you'd have to go get that actress and, and all of that stuff, and she probably yeah. wasn't available, and blah, 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 blah. But Cassandra, the character, has access to the SGC. That's true. That's right. And almost certainly she should have been there. Yeah. Yep. But um, part two of this episode, uh, Heroes Part Two, is actually the 150th episode of Stargate SG-1. Hey! So, wow, we're like, I mean, I know that we do one for one, but I'm just acknowledging, like, we're surprisingly close to being right on the money. We're at 149, right? Yeah. And of course, if we did these two episodes separately... Yeah, then we would be still, would still be right on pace. That's weird. Yep. Um, I mean, but that's it's weird because, because it's it's like we've done double episodes. I guess we just haven't done it. I just I guess we haven't done it in a while. Like we're just still, we're just still exactly on pace, right? Well, Sweet. we've done we we've done some double episodes in this process, but we've also then had like um, uh, you know extra episodes that we've yes. tossed in there yep. that balanced everything out, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um. This episode marks the first appearance of Richard Woolsey, played by Robert Picardo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, of course, most well-known uh, in sci-fi worlds as playing the holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager. He is the eighth Star Trek veteran to appear in the franchise. Mm-hmm. And uh, technically, you could say ninth, because this list does not have Saul Rubinek in it either. Um, although you might question whether or not Saul being in one episode counts. Who knows? But here's a list of regulars or guest actors who appear multiple times. Yes. They're from Star Trek who have been here. We've got Armin Shimmerman in The Knox, Dwight Schultz in The Gamekeeper, Rene Aubergenois from The Other Side, Marina Sirtis in Watergate, John Delancey in Ascension and other episodes, John Billingsley in The Other Guys, and Jolene Blaylock in Birthright. And then, of course, now Mm -hmm. we have Picardo and Saul Rubinek, if you want to count that as well. Yep. So, um, although we've had other guest actors who've just been like one episode of of uh, Star Trek who've been in this, but these are the ones who are like big names and such. Yep. So, uh, the narrator for the documentary mm-hmm. at the very end was mm-hmm. uh, voiced by Jim Burns, mm-hmm. and he voices General Stoneman and Harley Shepard on Stargate Infinity. General Shepard and who else? General... Stoneman and Harley Shepard. Shepard. Uh, I don't know who those characters no, are specifically. I don't, I don't think I but actually, them. when I was mm. listening carefully to his voice this time around, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Yep. I kind of remember hearing that voice in sure. that. Yep. So um, I have, I could have like had a thousand quotes, but I just picked one from this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from Joseph Malazzi. Uh, in an online chat at some point in time. Uh, Originally, this script was intended as a fun, different episode, and along the way took a very serious turn. 
This one also resulted in a pretty heavy debate in the writer's room. Suffice it to say, not everyone was in agreement on how this episode should end. That said, I think Robert did a masterful job. Robert, Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the best scripts he's ever written and is a wonderful salute to the unsung heroes who serve our country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We can get more on some of those as well. Um, The various titles of this episode in every language that I have access to, it is a translation of Heroes Part 1 and Part 2. Ah, yeah. Okay. So, yep. There you go. And that is what I have for background stuff. Yeah. Woof. So, Brent. Yeah. Um, you did the synopsis for this episode because I, I did. did not have the time this day. Uh, would you like to read that? I can. I can. And I'll totally confess that um, that at first we had the like the blocking on this one was from Stargate Command because that's kind of normally what we do. And as I was reading through it, boy, boy, it was bad. It was really bad. And so I'm like, is there a better synopsis out there? And sure enough, the Wikipedia one was good enough for me to keep going. So this is basically a lift off of the uh, Wikipedia synopsis for the episodes because it just did a better job of explaining what's going on. And so that's what I'm using today. So awesome. it's not it's not a Zach special where he handcrafts these things lovingly with 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 great detail and finesse. This is a Brent special where he goes and he goes find something on the web and then says that's good. So we'll go with that. <laughs> all right, you ready? Fair enough. Hit me. Part one. The president of the United States, nearing the end of his time in office, has grown concerned over how the public will react if the Stargate program becomes public knowledge after he leaves office. Hoping that he will be able to put a positive spin on his association with the program, his office have commissioned Emmett Bregman to create a documentary on personnel of Stargate Command and their activities. While unenthusiastic about the idea, General Hammond has promised to follow the president's orders to the letter. Bregman is given access to past mission reports and sets about interviewing members of Stargate Command. Straight away, Bregman is dodged by Jack, who suggests the journalist try sending him a memo. Daniel is unable to recall that his time ascended for the reporter and proceeds to toy with Bregman by running away to see if the film crew would follow him. Sam explains the science of the Stargate in great detail for the documentary, only to be asked by Bergman if they can see the gate spin. Teal is almost entirely unwilling to give any response to his questioning. Never missing an occasion to make his thoughts on the Stargate program heard, Senator Kinsey, who is now running to become the President of the United States, arrives and soon uses the occasion in an attempt to coerce O'Neill into pledging his vote to Kinsey's party on camera. As Bregman becomes more and more frustrated by the resistance he's met with, he interviews Dr. Janet Frazier, becoming increasingly smitten as the two have lunch together. Meanwhile, one of the reconnaissance teams, SG-13, explores a previously unvisited planet. After discovering an ancient ruin, the team encounters a Gua'uld probe, which they are able to incapacitate. Believing there is no further threat, the team continues their study of the ruins and they have the probe sent back to Stargate Command for study. Carter and Jackson determined that, prior to its destruction, the probe communicated back to the Gua'uld and believe SG-13's position to be in danger. Back on the alien planet, Senior Airman Simon Wells of SG-13 is struck by weapons fire from ambushing Gua'uld ground forces. With Wells needing medical attention, Cameron Balinski of SG-13 retreats through the gate to get help. 
SG-1, Dr. Frazier, and others are scrambled to perform a rescue mission. It smells like an ambush. Just before they depart, they walk past the film crew, ominously discussing short, undetailed aspects of the mission. Whatever it is, it's not good. Part 2. Having gone to assist SG-13, SG-1 and other teams enter combat. There are a lot of Gulwuld. Apparently, counting past six can be difficult. One, Shockingly, two, three, <laughs> four, five. What's next, Brent? It's six. Six, six. But, you know, then there's uh, seven, and then there's uh, eight, and then there's oh, nine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ten. Yep. Ten. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Is that, is that good enough? No, no, it wasn't. Anyway, oh, okay, okay. Sorry. shockingly, while providing cover for the wounded soldier uh, and noticing a, a, a Jaffa trying to flank them, O'Neill takes a Gould staff blast to the torso and falls to the ground amid continued firefight. <gasps> oh no! The embattled SG teams return to Earth, and while the camera crews are forced out of the gate room, an individual stretched lifeless on a gurney is visible and, continue, and gives concern to Bregman. Soon afterwards, reports that there are that there was a fatality. Soon afterwards, reports that there was a fatality during the mission begin to filter through the SGC, and piques the interest of the reporter. With a member of Stargate Command dead, Agent Wolseley has also been sent by the Intelligence Oversight Committee to investigate who is responsible, questioning the decisions of General Hammond, Doctor Jackson, and Major Carter. During this, Bregman con- continues to try to determine exactly what happened, who was on that stretcher, and whether rumors of O'Neill's death are accurate. An infuriated Bregman takes a strong stand about the importance of the media, especially in a top-secret program which is to be made public sooner or later anyway. He tells a poignant story highlighting the deep morality of documenting the sacrifice and loss associated with war. After continued pressure, Jackson allows the reporter to view a tape that he made during the mission. Viewing the tape, Bregman sees Dr. Frazier tending to Wells, and almost immediately after stabilizing him for travel, she takes a fatal staff blast to her torso. As O'Neill recovers in the infirmary, Daniel visits Wells and his wife, where he's introduced to their newborn baby, who they've named Janet in dedication to Frazier. Stargate Command personnel gather for the memorial service with Carter reading an eulogy of all the names of those that Janet saved. After Bregman shows Hammond his film, Hammond admits that he was wrong about the journalist's intentions, believing the documentary to be a fitting testimonial to those who have served and in some cases given their lives for the Stargate program and protection of Earth. With the closing shot, Jack sits down, and we'll talk with Bregman. The end. The end. So, Brent. Yeah. Heroes. Um, and I'm just going to call it Heroes because it's kind of one story and it's just one, functionally one episode. It's just longer. Yeah. What'd you think? So, <clears throat> uh, I didn't like it. And I loved it. <laughs> um, it's going to be one of those. Okay. Uh, as you were describing the production history of it so much about this particular pair of episodes started to make a lot more sense um i didn't like it because it was the pacing was weird man it was all over the map and it was uh it it was it was the pacing was off from parts one to part two the pacing was off within part two 
the pacing was consistent in part one. It was just boring, super boring. But obviously, when we get to the end of this story, a lot of all of that work that was being put into episode one and into episode two coalesce. Hearing that it was originally meant to be one story, but they couldn't get it down to 43 minutes, so they decided to expand it. It feels like that. It feels like a story. It feels like one whole story that makes sense and would and is worthy of 60 minutes of television time, which is too long. But I'm just saying like, you know, like, yeah, like this is this 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 makes sense like that, that, that it would be written this way. It would be shot like this. It would, you know, after editing, it would be about there. Um, The expansion slowed everything down, everything way down. And to the point of that, it just feels like the the last like two thirds of the second part were, you know, Wolseley excluded, uh, were like the majority of the story. And so part one is like one third of the original story expanded into 43 minutes, which is just just huge. And. And so there's so much about it, which is just dragging along, dragging along, dragging along. Um, I think that uh, having a story, and then also the 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 tone, then also is incongruous. So you know, as as um, Malazzi was saying, it was originally kind of intended to be a bit of a of a of a punchy, funny episode, and so you can see a lot of those beats in the first part, but it's not, you know, the but the tone of the overall story, I don't think would have allowed it. So they had to kind of cut it in a way that it, it, it just, it just didn't really, the jokes didn't feel all that funny. Teal sitting there, not saying anything should have been uproariously. Like I should have been feeling Bregman's frustration. He should have been like, 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 yeah, but then what do you do with that one? Should we thwart Bregman or should we reward it? Because at the end of it, we reward his work. And certainly in the middle middle end there, when he's going about the importance of journalism within a free society, it's like, yeah, that's deeply important. So, so he shouldn't be thwarted. So then why put up our heroes in a spot where I'm constantly disagreeing with them? Like I was agreeing with Bregman from the start. Um, I was on Bregman's side the entire time. And so when our heroes are being a bit jerks to him, it's not quite funny as much as it is obstructionist. And that's not a good look. And so it just didn't quite jam. And I was like, no, nah, our character is better than that. Like, you don't have to like it. And you know what I mean? Like there, there, there should be some kind of, of, of story arc that gets our characters to a spot where they accept it. And we can have friction along the way. But, you know, to, to, to be playing around with it just felt a little bit weird. It just felt a little bit off. And then the insertion of all the other stories, they technically work, but they just didn't quite get into place. It just didn't quite seem to actually work. Like, I got super excited for um, Ancient Ruins. I'm not sure why I got so excited as I did, but, like, I was sharing the enthusiasm of uh, the character's name. I can't remember. Belinsky. Um, Belinsky. Uh, with the finding of this thing, and then also the 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 drone, it was not clear to me that it was a Ghoul drone. I thought it was an ancient drone, 
And so I was actually really excited when um, Sam and, da- and Daniel were kind of cracking into the thing. And then all of a sudden, the everything shows up on the screen. And I'm like, is this going to be ancient stuff? No, it's Gould stuff. And they, 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 they played it as if they kind of half expected it would be Gould sort of. Um, and so that didn't that 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 emotional beat didn't quite line up for me either. Um, but <clears throat> I think that the story found exactly where its feet wanted to be when it started to tell the actual story of the death of a senior member of the Stargate Command group. And that's when that's when all the beats started hitting, like all of them, that the frustration and altruism of a journalist on site uh is necessary so that others are aware of what's actually happening and what is actually happening. It's not a bunch of people playing in space. It's a bunch of people putting their lives on the line for the protection of, of everyone. Um, not just Americans, but everyone Mm -hmm. and everyone's reticence to talk to the journalist still makes all the sense in the world, but the beat started to land a lot better where, um, you can't keep this stuff a secret and then expect to feel like your your efforts have meaning because the meaning is the saving. And there is an objective aspect of that saving and then there is a subjective part of that saving. And if you are not engaging in the subjective part where you are uh, feeling like what you are doing has impact because people are aware of what they of what is happening, then you're only getting half of the story. You're getting only half of the journey for yourself. Um, you know, for as much as, as all of us love to say the, 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 the beat up old phrase of, I just like it when nobody knows what I do. No, 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 nobody does. We understand that the doing of certain jobs means that others are unaware that it's happening. We get it, but Ellie, you know, to, to degrees and in different ways, everyone likes a little celebration about what they do. So it needs to be celebrated and it needs to be documented and it needs to be shared. Does it need to be shared today? No, no, it doesn't need to be shared today. Uh, While the exact metaphor of having cameras on Normandy beach is a little bit off because everybody knew what was happening on that day. um, It was not a surprise (laughs) what was happening that day. Uh, So having cameras there, like, you know, you do that. But his point was nobody knew what was going to happen that day. Um, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that this was going to be successful. So you had people documenting what was happening in real time. And that documentation is extraordinarily important. And if you don't have people do that, then you literally lose parts of your story entirely. So it was very important and having that there. And then you have the documentation of the death of Janet Frazier, where that moment it crystallized so well i thought that the there was another part about the going back and, cri- and criticizing the episode a little bit like the um the allusion to the death of jack o'neill something was wrong something was off with that one um to the point where i i was sitting there like if this really is the end of Jack O'Neill, they're playing it all wrong. Like there's, just, it's just not working. What if this really is this? Like it's the beats aren't landing. And then of course it didn't matter. It wasn't. It was about the death of Janet Fraser. And then those beats lined up. That's what. And that's kind of my point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so the documentation of the death of Fraser 
saving the life of a man who is about to become a new father is just about some of the best sad TV that I think I've ever seen. Um, I mean, it just, it just worked. And then the idea to eulogize Dr. Janet Frazier in the names of the people that she preserved the life of was <laughs> excellent. Mm-hmm. It was excellent because bringing it back to look, we, we need we need to celebrate our accomplishments and we need to find ways to do that and while janet fraser the entity wasn't able to listen to the names of the people that she saved she knew and she had been undoubtedly praised for as in like you know she she was aware of the people who lived and you know what i mean but like but what what better way to exemplify the impact of a person by naming the individuals who are alive today who otherwise wouldn't be that's great yeah i mean that's that's wonderful and the the documentary at the end um i, I i'm a bit split on I've got some pretty deep, strong opinions about how dangerous it is to uh, to idolize a concept, especially in 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 the version of nationalism. Uh, but on the other hand, the individuals who choose to provide that service to their country need to be treated with the utmost care and respect. Just all the way through, and I've got other very, very, very strong opinions about how we don't do that. And I don't mean your average person; I mean the nation state. How we say we um, cherish the lives and efforts of individuals who pledge to give everything of themselves for us, and then we use them to enrich <laughs> to enrich rich people. <laughs> like that's the most disrespectful thing we could possibly do. And I've got extraordinarily strong opinions about how just wrong that is. So as a result, I'm also critical of when when those very same individuals are literally acting as the arms of the organization and the entity that made those bad decisions. I'm critical of that. But the people, the people themselves need to be celebrated and honored with all of our utmost. Um, so... It was good to feel a little bit of that. It was good to have that moment of like, yeah, these things, these things happen. And 2004, we were very patriotic. You know, there was a whole lot going on in 2004, and it was, uh, you know, America was an it's just indomitable. And so it makes sense why this would be put into the episode at that point. And that closing shot, I thought was, I thought was good, as in like, yeah, like O'Neill was a, a big skeptic, but I, I, I just get the sense that. He's gonna in that interview talk frankly and talk a lot, and you know in the in the in the Stargate universe it feels good to know that that is gonna get documented, and then at some point in the Stargate future your everyday people are going to learn about these things and they're gonna learn about the importance of the things and so that felt great so um so that was a very long response uh but this was also kind of a big one you know so all right. What about you, Zach? What do you what do you think about this episode? So let me begin by commenting to some of those things that you talked about yes. here near the end. Um, a, we don't 
actually get to see the documentary video. We get to see the last 20 seconds uh, yeah, of yeah, the yeah. video, yes. which is like, these people are real people, and they're doing some amazing things, and we need to honor that. That's all we see. We don't see any of the rest of it. Uh, we can assume, I think, that the rest of that documentary um, really highlights the humanity of what these people are actually doing. Because that was Hammond's and everybody else's big concern here. Um, you mentioned that there is a big difference between the politicians and the governmental policies that put people's lives in danger mm -hmm. and the people who do the work that needs to be done when their life has been put in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And we have seen in this country um, over the last hundred years or more, frankly more, that we do a terrible job of distinguishing those two things. Yeah. And we tend to uh, throw upon the, the soldiers and troops and airmen and whomever else uh, onto them the, the skepticism that would more appropriately be put on the people and the policies that put them in that place, yep. not in what they're doing. Uh, you know, big example is the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the troops that come back from the Vietnam War are treated like crap in this mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. uh, why were they treated like crap? Because it was an unpopular war. But we as a nation despite the fact that I'm certain that there were plenty of individuals, but we as a nation uh, did a terrible job of splitting that difference. And what we see even in our present day, the, the big uh, debates between support our troops and all of that stuff, uh, even some of the political divides between Republicans and Democrats in this country uh, center around this very thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this idea of, of criticizing the people on the ground for doing what they have been ordered to do and, you know, called to do um, for, for the policies that may or may not be wise that end up putting them in that situation, um, th that's been, th that's a problem in this country. And as far as I can tell, I've, I've not served in the military. Uh, I know several people who have, um, obviously. But the sense I get is that that feeling is uh, felt acutely by those people who have served or are serving in the military. Mm -hmm. And we see that in this because you see an immediate distrust of Bregman and, frankly, in the, the history of SG-1, the series, and what's happened internally, it makes sense that they would be skeptical of outside entities trying to honestly document something. Mm -hmm. uh, they have run into people who have tried to do that and have only brought in their own agendas and not done a good job of being balanced. Mm -hmm. uh, and, frankly, Bregman does not do himself any services because he instantly comes in here and is antagonistic. Um, and you can I mean, argue I guess. about Can you be antagonistic if you literally have an invitation from the highest ranking military officer in the nation? 
Well, I mean, so yes, I get what you're yes, saying. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. But you know, um, he's there on orders too. Right, but he specifically says at one point in time to his crew, like, if this story was going to tell itself, it would have already done that. If we're going to tell the story, we've got to yank it out of it. We've got to pull it out of them. And nobody enjoys having their teeth pulled out of their mouths. No. Even if nobody, it's a good thing. Yeah, but journalism also demands that you yank teeth out of mouths. Well, and okay, our society yeah. is better for it. Uh, I, I'm not arguing that Of course, of course, of course. But, right? you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm saying, but there, I suspect that there are better and worse ways of approaching that. Um, it, and, and maybe, maybe part of the problem was that, you know, the, like, um, uh, the Colonel that was following around, I can't think of his name now. Colonel um, Mustache. Colonel Mustache. Uh, you know, he wasn't especially, um, welcoming, um, you know, so I'm not I'm not uh, uh, giving our heroes a free pass. Uh, uh, O'Neill and Hammond weren't very welcoming in all of this stuff. Uh, but all of this was happening. Uh, there, there, there were two people who walked in the situation, and they were not communicating well. And we see this on there. Um, you know, uh, I, I see. Bregman, who is trying to yank and pull a story out of things, and I'm seeing people who have an inherent distrust of uh, outside influences not uh, telling the real story, but instead of twisting the story for their own political game. Uh, They've even seen that from this administration, even though this administration is uh, has been generally... Uh, welcoming of of this, mm-hmm. but you know, so like if Bregman turns out to be somebody who is concerned with the free press and is concerned about telling the real story as it is, that's what he turns into, and and maybe he was that from the beginning. But our heroes, if we're looking at it from their perspective, see him coming in and assume that he is coming in with a political agenda from the outgoing administration, and that agenda is about the politics, not about the people. That's Which their assumption. is something that I thought was sort of, like, hilariously weirdly inserted, because I, by training and, and, and profession, am a person who deals with the documentation of evidence and the use of of that information. Meaning there's nothing political. There are biases and that matters and you got to think about it. And if you're not thinking about it, you're doing a poor job doing your, your, your job. But this episode couldn't figure out where it wanted to go on that point. It forces a person like me to go. Yeah, this should be documented. Nobody's saying that they're going to release this tomorrow. We're not talking about jeopardizing the public's frail little minds with this information too soon. We're talking about, literally documenting it, storing it in a vault for 75 years, and then maybe releasing it later. What's more altruistic than that? Well, and, so... And you get... Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. So, what, you know, so then, therefore, it forces me to go, well, all right, SG-1 is full of crap on this one. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're wrong. You're wrong, General Hammond, because it is not 
necessarily an intrusion on the privacy of the of whatever or the secrecy of whatever to have something literally documented for posterity's sake. That's why you do mission reports, General Hammond. What do you think is happening here? You're wrong, Jack O'Neill, because just because somebody's bothering you all the time doesn't mean he doesn't have a good point. Now, you may have other things to be doing, and you probably are a heck of a lot more busy than to sit and talk to a journalist. No question about it. But you don't have to have quite so much of an attitude. Uh, Samantha Carter is the one who's most excited to talk about it. And then we diminish her character's uh, work by being like, yeah, 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 too much science talky-talky. Teal'c is sitting there like a stone. And while all of these things should be funny beats, it just looks like he's being obstructionist. And then you got Daniel Jackson, who's toying around with it by running down the hall just to see if the camera crew would chase him. They all look like idiots right now. That's a bad look for my heroes, and I don't like it. And Fair so, enough. and so this story. But why is it a bad look? It's because this story needed to be serious, right? The story needed to be serious. It couldn't be funny, and so it had to jam this in in that little weird angle. But now things just don't quite line up. And so, and so now it's, it's, it's in a spot where you and I are agreeing and disagreeing and agreeing on elements of this story because it was constructed to say one thing first and then a different thing second, but they didn't rewrite the whole thing. They expanded it. So I'm critical of it because this thing should have been a feature. Like there's plenty of story here for it to be a right and proper two-parter. But it demanded that, okay, 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 the setup is all wrong now. The setup is, we got to redo the setup. Like, we got to sit here and we have to have, we can have character arc and we can have story arc. You you can absolutely have Hammond be thinking that this is all, like, you know, stupid and a fluff piece. You can have Jack be frustrated that he's got to do this kind of thing. You can have everything. You can have all those same starting points, but we got to the end where everybody suddenly is okay with it, kind of in this weird rushed way. And that's the thing that I'm sitting here like, look, are we either going to celebrate the, in the, the obstruction of journalism or not? Because that's the first part of the story is celebrating the obstruction of journalism. And the man had a point from the start that this isn't, this isn't news. This isn't news. This is documentation. There is a difference. There is a difference. We like news because we want to be informed about things now. That's why we like news and it has a point and it has a purpose. And we like investigative journalism because it tells us what's happening now-ish with a bit of context. This is neither. But you need to have that kind of person who's going to be like, look, I get it. You don't want to talk to a person with a camera. I understand. But it's going to happen and it's a good thing. So let's get to that spot. So, yeah, so I'm fired up about it because I was with Bregman from the start and therefore I was in this weird emotional dissonance the entire time because the episode was like, isn't Bregman a jerk? And I'm like, no, he's not. Yeah, he's such a jerk. He's like in the way. No, he isn't. Yeah, he can't see anything. He's mad. Yeah, that's really obnoxious. <laughs> no, not. It's bad. So, but the, but again, the episode ends on such a strong and boy, does it nail it. And Bregman is a major part of that ending. Like the the story matters because there's a journalist in the room all of a sudden. No, you could tell the story that matters without a journalist, no question. But what has happened matters and where the story wanted to go about its point because he was there. And now he is just just as heroic a part of this particular story as our heroes are as we celebrate and honor the death of their chief medical officer. 
So here is what I think is happening. Okay. Um, I a I won't disagree with you that there are some beats in this episode that aren't quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that has bugged me is the the editing of the the scenes in the even the second part of it, which is I think way more interesting and stronger than the first part. I'll grant you that. Um, is that, you know, uh, Hammond is like, ah, get out of here, go away, I don't want to see you ever again. And then he's like, immediately in the next scene, he's like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should do this. And then it, it shifts gears a little bit too fast for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that that has always felt uh, uh, disjunct and and not... There, there, there was a step in there between... Uh, Hammond throwing this guy out on his ass. Yep. Uh, and saying, "Hey, wait a second. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe, maybe he's the better, uh, the the lesser of two evils, if you will, from his perspective." Um, there, there is a, there's something missing in there, uh, mm-hmm. and I will grant that. Now, what we have here is, um, in order to do that documentary, there needs to be trust in the system. Yeah, that's fair. And rightly or wrongly, there is not trust in the system between the SGC and Bregman. Yep. Um, it is understandable where it's coming from, uh, particularly from the SGC side, right? They know that this is coming because the President of the United States is departing and wants to put a positive spin on this. That's not a good starting place. And since you don't know Bregman from anybody, all you know is the order, the back orders we get there. Um, and given the SGC's history, coming with a dose of skepticism makes sense. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. No, I'm yeah. simply saying it makes sense, right? Um, Bregman comes in here and he's trying to tell an honest story from the very beginning. Yeah. But he doesn't, uh, you know, his whole attitude is very in your face. Maybe it needs to be because he's dealing with people who are also in his face and he's pushing against that. I'm not arguing the right or wrongness of it. I'm simply saying that there is. He's not trusting them, and they're not trusting him. And when you have that lack of trust, when they're talking over each other and not mm-hmm. to each other, mm-hmm. uh, you necessarily get these types of things and interactions happening. Um, and my critique, critique, more than anything else of this episode, is not how it begins. Um, uh, I do like... So, like, here, here's the thing. Like, like, when he sits down and interviews... Uh, Frazier. Yep. Uh, his demeanor changes. His body changes. She changes. Why? Why is that happening? Because the adversarial quality of the relationship isn't there. There and who who's the catalyst for that? Who can say? Um, you know, there there's a little bit of potential chemistry between these two people. You know, um. It, is it that chemistry that's that's releasing this tension? I don't think so. Um, is it part of it? Possibly. Who knows? But there's he's softer, she's softer. the The conversation is freer in that moment, 
Even when she's sitting there, well, you know, here's his, here's O'Neill's medical records, blah, 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 blah. Um, and eventually, we get a couple of scenes in the second half where Bregman is talking to Jackson about just, or maybe it's the first half, you know, if you happen to be there, shoot some film, get some action, right? Mm-hmm. Later on, the story of Kristofsky and all of that, um, you start to uh, develop some rapport my my issue with this episode more is not how it begins, really. Uh, I'm okay with the antagonism. Uh, I think it's edited in such a way that the transition from um, I don't trust this man to, well, maybe I need to try to trust him and start the trusting process because it's the only thing I have. That That's abrupt it doesn't that's not smooth yeah yeah um and that bugs me yeah um but the fact that they started in that adversarial position is understandable from both sides and uh we see that lack of trust and frankly um if i didn't trust a news crew who was there to interview me and what I'm doing, and I got a pager message that says, ooh, something's over here. I would totally do what Daniel Jackson did. Yeah, but... And tr- I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying I would do it. It was a news crew. That's my point. Now, you brought up a really darn good point, which I kind of was sitting here like, mm, right. He was editorializing it as it was, right? So, like, the character was intending to tell a narrative and figure, find the story and then tell a story. He was literally taking the interviews and weaving them in a way that's like, okay, this is what... And so it, it was coming across like a 60-minute type of thing, which is news. And what, I, and, and what I'm jumping up and down about is that that is not documentation, right? Now, documentation is more than just mission briefs. It's more than just... But that's the realm of history. That's for historians. And that wasn't what Bregman said he was doing, right? He was there... At the invitation of the uh, president, I'm sorry, I, I might be misstating it. He he said he was at the invitation of the president to document what was going on in the SGC. And then we get these other layers on top of it. We get Jackson saying it's all a political stunt. We get Hammond being super gruff because he's like, I see what the orders are. And I'm going to follow them to the letter. Like we get those layers on top of it. But what did Bregman say was his job to document, not editorialize which he was doing, but to document, meaning the story slipped on that one. A documentarian wouldn't be sitting here like editorializing it on the way. Would they be in people's faces? Probably. Yeah. Would they be like sticking cameras and things where people are a little bit uncomfortable? Yeah, probably so. Would that have an adverse effect on those people's performances? General Hammond was saying, yeah, probably so. But if if the group decides, the group, the society, the, if the, if all of us decide that documenting this stuff helps and the analysis of that documentation helps, then you need to document it. And part of the documentation is film and sure. sound. And and when you have that layer of trust, yep, yeah, you can do that. Yes. And what we see here is that uh, the SGC under Hammond and O'Neill, does not have trust with Bregman. They believe, rightly or wrongly, but understandably, that Bregman is there not for documentation, even though that's what he says he's there for, 
but for some sort of political agenda that they don't know. Mm-hmm. They have experienced that firsthand in the past. It makes complete sense that that's where they would begin. Yeah. And yeah. that's where this begins. Now, you being a historian, a trained mm-hmm. historian, mm-hmm. Uh, look at this and hear him say, I'm a documentary, a, a documentarian, and I'm here to simply document. You immediately go, of course. Yeah. And you're right there in his camp. Yep. On the other hand, myself, I have always been suspect of those who are trying to evaluate my decisions. Mm-hmm. And I immediately start from a place of questioning, at the very least. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I am going to protect myself. And only when I feel that this person who is evaluating me is going to at least be fair, uh, even if I don't like it, you know, I, I try to protect myself. That's instinctual. I know that it happens in me, and it's not always a good thing, but it does happen. It's instinctual. Mm-hmm. And so when I watch this episode, I see Bregman's uh, uh, gruffness and in-your-faceness, and I'm like, dude, this guy's a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, now, later on, as it develops, and we see the the softer side, the sides that that we when we start to discover that that Bregman is not here for political purpose but here for uh for that documentary process although even as he's editing the video and such at times he's trying to tell a story mm-hmm. uh create a story um and of course that's what he's looking for right he's looking for the architecture of a story that allows him to document this in a way that makes sense because every documentation needs a story that uh, that puts the pieces together. That helps. The analysis frame. does. The, the analysis. analysis does. Yes. Well, that's his job. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, no, yeah. As that, presented that, that on is the screen, his job. you're right. That's well, his yeah. job. That's what he was doing. He was trying to create a documentary, which isn't yes. simply a documentation of evidence. No, yeah, you're but not. He was trying to create a documentary. Crafting the, the evidence into a story for consumption. This is the History Channel, which isn't really the History Channel. It's the Documentary Channel. Yeah, but you don't make a documentary for 100 years from now, right? You just don't. You can document for 100 years from now. You can create archival footage, no question about it. But he wasn't doing... He was trying to create a story, and I don't think that they were actually predicting 100 years. I know, I know. I'm I'm just saying, again, the story didn't get it right. That's my point, is I'm critical of the story. The story kept saying, this is not going to be released right away. This is a documentary for later. It's going to be public someday, he says. Someday can be 100 years from now. You don't make a documentary for 100 years from now. You make a documentary to talk about things now. It's a version of news. So, you know, you and I are saying basically the same thing, but from two very different sides of the coin, where um, the character, the... uh, evidence presented within the story and the actions taken by the character and the response to the character all line up with this is going to be on 60 minutes in six months all of it lines up with that right Mm -hmm. but the story kept saying this isn't for the news this is a documentary 
for when the public finds out, for when they find out, you're gonna wanna have this information out there so that you have the story. You're gonna want it when the public finds out. It's that when the public finds out thing that is sticking in my craw because when the public finds out is gonna be whenever. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. And again, it's bringing it back to the story missed this. So if- I wanna, I wanna comment on that real quick because- okay. Um, I don't think that, so I will concede that the story is like the words that Bregman and even some of the other people are saying about what is supposed to happen and, and all this stuff. But I don't think that's necessarily a a place where the story missed it. I think it's certainly where the characters are not talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, the... You know the 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 story is, um, I, I, oh man, it just kind of fell out of my head. Uh, the this idea is that uh, the the words that they're saying and the actions that they're doing aren't always lining up on both sides of this, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily a fault of the story. It's an element of the story of the episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and so I, I don't think it's a problem with the story writing or, you know, Cooper's writing per se. Um, now, you we could make that conversation, was, what was he intending and what, what occurred? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know Rob Cooper well enough and such. Um, but, you know, for the sake of what did we receive, whether it was intentional or otherwise, who knows? But intention... Uh, the the disconnect uh, between what people are saying and what people are doing becomes part of the story itself. And that disconnect actually creates a lot of the tension that needs to be resolved in this episode. Where the episode fails yes, yes, yes. is, is mm-hmm. the, 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 there's one step in there, uh, I think, I think could be solved in one step, uh, between let me throw you out on your butt and... Oh, maybe I should give you this uh, tape so that it doesn't go to Woolsey because we all know that Woolsey is not the person to be telling this story. Um, Woolsey definitely has an agenda, and it's not a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe Bregman, after everything he's talked about, uh, and that speech in the corridor about about the, the free freedom of the press and the necessity of all that stuff, mm-hmm. was astounding acting. And oh yeah, it was a great story and something and a message that we today even need to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so all of that fits together. But there was one step in there that was missing in there that I, I think needed to be there. So. Yeah, and so but and so I keep swirling around. Did I like this episode? No. Did I love this episode? Yes. Um, what does that mean? It means that if if they had found a way to tell the story in 43 minutes, which they tried to do but failed, I think it would have worked. If they found a way to, from the beginning, tell this story in 90 minutes, I think they would have succeeded wildly. It's because they intended it to be 43 minutes and then decided for it to be for 90 that this is where the frictions are where I'm having problems with it. It's creating a, just all these pockets of 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 peculiarity that are forcing you and I to talk at length about the appropriateness of whether or not a journalist should be at SGC. Right? <laughs> that wasn't the story here. It was. It was it was definitely the story. 
But what do people remember heroes about, Zach? I bet you, I bet you a box of donuts. I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to go ahead and leave it like that. How do so, people remember this story, Zach? People remember the story because this is the story that told the death of Janet Frazier. And we barely talked about that. And that and that beat was perfectly done. Oh, yes. Um, oh, that was flawless. You know, from, from the the acting of Wells, I can't think of the actor's name, Tobias somebody, I think, if I, yeah. I have to look up. Uh, you know, as he's sitting there and screaming about, you know, this gut wound that he's got. Um, holy smokes, that was believable. Yeah. Um, and that little squeak that that uh, Frazier has when that blast hits and just the the surprise of that, um, it 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 tore my feels apart. Oh, yeah. I was crying yeah. through this process. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was even, I was even emotional when Bregman was giving that speech in the hallway about what uh, the freedom of the press is. You know, what their purpose is, what's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it was a, it was true, and and b, he just delivered that so well, and everybody else just stood there in the awkward silence of that knowing that what he's saying is the truth, mm-hmm. but also not certain necessarily what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that just worked tremendously well. Um, I liked the idea of telling a story from Bregman's perspective. Um, it was done well. Uh, the first part of the episode is you know, entirely set up so that the second episode, second part can have its punch. Um, yeah, which also is a thing which we haven't talked about, which is that this was originally separated by a week's worth of time. I don't know why anybody would have watched the second part of this thing. The first part was not all that. It Like, what happened? A bunch of people got mad at a journalist, and then they went through the gate. That's what happened. Like, okay, I guess things um, are threatening. Well, I mean, you know, you have... So, I'm trying to remember when I saw this for the first time. Yeah, did you see it live or did you see it on DVD? Well, let's see, 2004. 2004, I was in Chicago. I probably found this online. Sure. um, Because I don't think that I had sci-fi. I don't think I had cable at this point in time. Um, I don't remember. I mean, I would have seen this near February of 2004. Um, oh no, I was still, see, I, I was still in Japan. Mm-hmm. I was still in Japan. So I was, I, I definitely didn't watch this, um, on air at this point in time. I definitely would have found it online sure. in a place. Uh, I don't recall if I watched it, uh, I think that the first time I watched it was, uh, I was able to watch part one and part two back to back. It, it, and it makes sense. And that's probably most people's experience of it. Um, and actually, there was conversation, uh, they, they said this in the commentary, about not just simply making this a two-part episode, but actually uh, turning it into a 90-minute single part, right? Yeah. Uh, and and, and we <laughs> yeah. will see some episodes in the future that do that. Yeah. Um, but this is, and, and my understanding is that Sci-Fi Channel would have been, you know, open to that. But ultimately, seeing is 
in syndication at this point in time, uh, you need to split it into 45-minute episodes. Uh, they had to do that anyway, and so that's how they landed with and, and the reason why I even really bring that up, though I definitely alluded to it, is that like this the, part one, part one's a dud, an absolute dud. There is no reason to watch part two the next week uh, unless you're a, a fan, right? It did nothing to build up a problem that you're like, oh my goodness, how is this going to end? It was literally watch a journalist be frustrated for 40 minutes. Okay. To be continued. Why? (laughs) What is there to be continued? Now, because I watched it back to back, you've watched it back to back. Probably most everybody on planet Earth who is a Stargate fan today has watched this thing back to back. Several people, I'm sure, I'm sure many listeners will be like, I watched it live back in the day and good for you. But I'm just saying like most people are probably experiencing this as one story, which is fine. It's how I've experienced now. It it makes sense. And it makes sense that it was a story that was a little bit too long and they couldn't quite get it down. So they decided to expand it. And these are all these all make sense. But it didn't work. It, It didn't work. It it found its voice in the second half of the last part. And my goodness, did it sing it well. Oh my gosh. It, it's, it's almost flawless TV, that second half. So good. And Bregman and his role and Janet and her role and the entire SGC and e- like everything worked and it worked really, really well. And you couldn't have had it work so well if you didn't have some of that establishing stuff that we got in episode one and the stuff that happened in episode two. Like, like I'm right there with you. But when I think of it and as I'm trying to be a good critic of it. I have to say, like, there's a lot about this thing that just didn't work. And I think that that does a disservice to the second half of that second episode, which was just, it was great. It was really, really, really good. Super duper great. So anyway, all right. And now I'm starting to ramble and say the same thing over again. All right. Sorry. But, you know, and the another thing that we didn't talk about, Zach, yep. is, is Wolseley. Wolsey. Wolsey. Yeah, like, I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm glad that um, Richard Picardo is going to be a thing that I'm going to be seeing more of. That's great. Uh, and but and I and I understand where they kind of jammed him in because they had to find thing. But his his arrival was weird, like instant. Like there's no committee on Earth that can move that fast. I don't care who it is. Like, <laughs> I'm here from the intelligence committee. No, you're not. Like, I mean, yeah, that's what you say on the paper, but you know, whatever. Um, and so just out of nowhere and his, and his, his overlapping, um, uh, duty to, to, to get, uh, to the bottom of what happened. It just felt weird. It felt kind of weirdly out of place. It did provide the juxtaposition of, um, you know, if you're so noble about getting to the truth of things, are you willing to go in front of these cameras with me and talk about it? Again, bringing it back to news. They kept, yeah, maybe I just need to rewrite my own headcanon. It was for 60 minutes. I know what they said. It's going to be when the people find out. No, they weren't. They were, you know, like they were going to broadcast it in a week. But I don't know. It's just, go, yeah, go ahead. So it was, so Bregman, I think that Bregman was trying to produce something that would be aired immediately, knowing full well that it's not going to end up being immediately. Yeah. But I still think that that's what he was, you know, he was trying to convey 
not from a historical perspective that, hey, you guys in the future, this is what was going on in 2004, right? Mm -hmm. He was trying to say in the people in 2004, this is what's going on. But recognizing that the 04 people are not actually going to be people who see it. The people who are going to see it are the 2020 or the 2030 or the 2050. Right. But I think his intent was to produce something that could have aired immediately. Yeah. Um, knowing that they weren't going to actually air it immediately. Mm-hmm. But also hoping that maybe they did. Because, I mean, Bregman was an arrogant man. Uh, and right. I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. It's just that that's part of who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that plays a role in it. Oh, uh, well, gosh, goodness. We yeah. could talk a lot. About, I mean, we didn't even talk about Janet specifically. No, we didn't. Um, <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, so, you know, it, real quick on that front, um, Robert Cooper, when he was writing this episode, insisted that... Um, you know, in order to um, help show that there's actually danger in what we're doing, somebody needs to die, and it needs to be somebody that we especially cared about, you know, somebody who we are emotionally invested in. And if there was, you know, a sixth member to the regular cast of this show up to this oh point... Oh gosh, that's how it came about? Oh, that's part of it. I, I don't know the exact pieces of it. Um... Now, I will say also this in a slightly different angle uh, in terms of the possibility of, was it O'Neill? Watching this live, there was still talk in 2004 that, uh, you know, is RDA coming back? Is he not coming back? What's going to happen? There were uncertainties going on. Um, So the idea that while we didn't think it was Jack... Um, we thought, well, what if it is? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, we weren't expecting Daniel's death, but all of a sudden it was, but what if it is? Yeah. Um, and and so I remember feeling that that first time. Uh, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Frazier. And then getting hit in the feels for that mm-hmm. was oofta. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, um, oh, there was something, it was, as you were talking about it, I, I, I thought of, thing now now i haven't thought the um oh i know where i was going with that one the the i i i (laughs) hearing that it was robert cooper who was like okay who should it be hmm who should it be michael shanks wanted to go in a different professional direction and so they figured out how to make that happen um sounds like terrell rothery wasn't really given that choice I thought it was that Janet Fraser dies because Terrell isn't going to be available for whatever reason. Maybe she got a maybe she got a, a you know headlining role, starring role. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. reasons happen, and her death, the character death, would be extremely impactful. And so let's come up with a story to talk about why it matters. Why would it matter? It's because this work is dangerous. And so how would we talk about the dangerousness and talk about, you know, in a way that's a bit novel? How about we have a documentary crew there? You know I mean? Like, like that feels like an organic way to kind of go about it. Terrell, congratulations. You got a fantastic gig. How do we get your character out of this thing? How about we make it worthwhile? How about we talk about something important? Well, so what you're telling me is that it's a flip. Okay. What do you got? Well, there's another piece to this is that even at this point in time, like when they were when they were making this decision, when they were filming this stuff, 
perhaps by the time it aired, they knew, but not by the time that they were filming this stuff and writing this story. They didn't know that they were coming back for a seventh or an eighth season. In fact, they assumed that the show was going to be finished after seven seasons, that they were going to do seven seasons. Sure. And that they were going to do a made-for-TV movie that yep. was going to leapfrog the, the, the franchise into Atlantis. Yep. And so at this point in time, uh, saying goodbye to Terrell oh, I see what Rothery you're at this point yeah, yeah, in time yeah, 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 is yeah. not like, sayonara, see you later. It's, yeah. well, okay, let's say goodbye to you. And in three more episodes after this, we're going to have to say goodbye to everybody. Yes. So when this decision was made, it was not made to say, well, let's just get rid of Terrell and Janet Frazier. Uh, it kind of turned into that. And I have a suspicion, um, kind of reading between the lines in some places, is that if they had realized that they were going to have three more seasons after this, yeah, they may not have chosen this particular route to go. Yeah. But when you make the assumption that you've got only a few more episodes after this and airs, because this was filmed earlier in the season, but placed in this spot, right? So when mm -hmm. this was filmed, uh, they didn't know. Um, it begins to, A, have that punch that you were looking for without quite the same, well, let's just kill off, you know, who's he, what's it? You yeah. Know, the, you know, it, it kind of turned off to be like, oh, you know, you killed her, but then you had like six more, you know, three more seasons left. What was this about? Yeah. You know, Terrell was loved. She liked working here. This was a good thing for her. It was a good thing for everybody. And you just killed her off. And then you went on for three more years. Well, that sounds kind of cruddy. Right. But when you look at it from the from. lens yeah. of mm -hmm. we assume that by the time we have killed her off and the season's going to have just a couple more episodes and then the series is going to be... Now it be, the, the context changes that writing decision. Yep. Yep. No, I see it. Now, if you... For me, I, 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 for where I think you were going, um, like, like without that context, th this sounds like cruddy, crappy writing and 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 decision just a weird decision for a franchise just, yeah it was just as in like instead of instead of dealing with real life in a way that's creative it was creating drama uh for the sake of creating drama which i don't like as much as uh, being creative and adjusting to telling a story through people's real lives Right. Part of the reason that I like television storytelling is that sometimes things happen and your plan doesn't work anymore. And how do you adjust? How do you then pivot and then continue to tell a compelling story? That's what makes this kind of art really interesting to me because it's the uncertainties that you have to plan around and keep telling your story through, which mm -hmm. makes it craft. It, it, now it turns into craft where it takes talent to be able to continue to tell compelling story while life is going on because these things aren't happening in hermetically sealed bubbles. The, these people who are playing these characters have real lives and we've talked about it, right? Richard Dean Anderson is not around a whole lot this season because he wanted to do something else. And so what have we done? We've gotten creative. We've explored some of the other characters. His involvement in the stories is really kind of artfully 
popped in. It's really tiny in some spots. And in some cases, it makes me think that they literally filmed. They put a they put a, a little camera on a pedestal somewhere. He put on his hat wherever he was. And he did three episodes worth of dialogue because he was talking <laughs> through the through the through the, the little camera on the on the, the, the little rover thing. Um, the map, um, you know, like, you know, the, the, I thought that, you know, it's that's clever. That's charming because this is television. This is a show. This isn't real life. As much as I love documentation, et cetera, et cetera, we aren't watching a documentary. We're watching a television show. And so, you know, going through that, those, those challenges, that's really charming. That's really fun. When they decide to kill off a character, there's always a story. Uh, they don't like the person. The person doesn't like them. There's a new opportunity. There's a different direction. There's always a story. And we don't like the stories where they just didn't like him that much. And so they, they offed the character. And we don't particularly like the stories of they, the character really didn't like working for them. So they just decided to kill him. Um, we don't like those stories. We do like the stories of it, things are maturing and this person is a person and they're going off in a different direction. And so it's sad, but, you know, we're going to make we're going to make this thing happen. Like, that's fine. And you are 100 percent right. I am viewing this through the lens of we got three more seasons. They didn't know that. <laughs> right. Didn't know Within that. a few episodes, they were going to be saying goodbye to everyone. That's exactly the right way to look at this one. And so this was Terrell's opportunity to play Janet Frazier's exit from the series in a way that actually was about her character as opposed to just closing the door. Yeah. Um, and I think also when... So, yeah, okay. So the, ser- the season finale is a two-part episode that we'll actually yeah. get to in just a couple of weeks. Yep. Um, that episode uh, is the framework of what the movie was going to be. Okay. Um, now, what precisely that movie was going to be, and I, I know that they made differences. They, they changed things, obviously, right? Things things change when, when you go from a movie to two-part episodes and and you know the 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 flavor and movement of things changed and shifted around and blah 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 all of that stuff. But I think one of the things that they were doing with this episode in killing off Frazier is adding jeopardy. Right? We have talked about plot armor for yeah, years. Yes. yes. Right? And when the series is moving towards its finale and you know you only got a couple more episodes left and then you're doing a tv movie and all of this stuff um to raise the stakes by killing off a beloved character pushes the audience and everybody else to think well if they're willing to kill off frazier halfway through the season um what might they be willing to do in a movie mm-hmm. yeah uh and that ups the stakes because you know your your TV characters in the movie don't have the same plot armor as they would in a normal TV series, mm-hmm. and so this is I think um, one of the ways that the writing staff was trying to ratchet up the the danger uh, and peril for the our our primary he- mm-hmm. as the series is moving to its climax. To its end. Now it doesn't end; it keeps going, and that uh, changes the dynamic. Of- mm-hmm. But I think that was what was going through the minds of our writers as this was. Yep. 
That makes sense. Um, Brent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I invite you to watch the, the video that uh, David made as kind of a tribute for Janet Frazier. Mm. It's not very long. I don't think we need to put that on the air. Uh, David has put that on the discords already, and we can get that um, up on our Facebook page, if I remember. David, if you're listening to this, (laughs) if you want to do that, you go right ahead. Um, (laughs) One of the perks of being the quasi-showrunner is that you can quasi-post things for real. Um, So, um, with that, I should invite you to do that, but I don't think that it fits where we're at right now. Yep. And I don't need to do that. Uh, So, what does fit right here, right now, are your ultimate Chevron ratings. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to recommend that since this was designed to be a single story, and even though it was part one and part two, um, and we've talked about part one, blah, 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 all that stuff, I invite you to give me one rating for this single two-part episode. My single rating is seven out of seven. Now, why on earth would I give it seven chevrons after I just got done bagging it so hard? So hard! It's because it landed. It's like a gymnast. I'm imagining a gymnast in world competition running down the runway about to do a somersault off of a... What the horse, the horse thing, the saddle, whatever. I don't care. They're running down the thing, and while they're running, they keep doing things like making faces at the crowd and like waving their arms <laughs> up and down and like doing a little shimmy. And I'm like, "What are you doing?" And it goes and you run, 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 and then does a little salsa move right in the middle. It's like, "Are you are you here to do gymnastics or what? What's going on here?" And then it jumps off of the springboard, off of the pommel horse, and does like this flip that's just. Uh, what i've never seen uh, it's so beautiful and then just boom, sticks the landing perfectly arms up into the air goes over to the judges and then walks off and it's like i don't know what i just saw but it was amazing and so yeah this episode tells a beautiful story that is poignant and purposeful and it involves the death of a beloved character this uh, is great this was great. It was wonderful. I have serious problems about how we got to the end of this thing, but the ending was so strong that this is a seven out of seven. I wouldn't recommend anybody watch part one and then wait a week and then watch part two. That would be a disaster. But yeah, watch the whole thing. And when you get to the end, all the pieces start to line up and it actually lands the, the story really, really well. Seven out of seven for me. What about you? Um, before I get to my ratings, I have two things that I want to share. One, yes. Uh, on the DVDs, which I have, and mm-hmm. normally I watch this in streaming fo- fashion, um, but I also watch the commentaries on the DVDs because that's where I get the commentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heroes Part 1 is on one disc, and Heroes Part 2 is on the next disc. Oh, man, that's even that's terrible. So, I, you know, when, <laughs> when I was watching this, you know, for the thousandth time but not streaming it, I would, you know, I'd, I'd plow through the disc. And, and of yes. course, these, this, was, this was before that play all feature on DVDs. Yeah. So you had to manually shift things. But yep. then you get to the end of uh, uh, part one, 
And now you have to get up off the couch and watch uh, walk over to your DVD player and yep. pull out the old disc and put yep. in the new disc and yep. all of that stuff. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, if you're watching this episode, don't watch this. Um, watch these two episodes at a single sitting, yeah. at a single time. That's the way these are designed to be. Uh, so that's the first thing. Number two, um, it is established in Stargate canon that a ninth chevron is possible that it Uh exists and that there's a reason there's there's a possibility there Uh uh-huh um uh i don't think that we actually get that in canon until like midway through atlantis and then into universe okay um but you know and as the eighth chevron uh kind of moves us from this galaxy to a different galaxy maybe the ninth chevron takes us to the other side of the universe or whatever who knows oh yeah um but that ninth mm. chevron exists as a theoretical possibility. Uh-huh. And a uh, good friend of the show, David, uh, wanted to remind me specifically uh, <laughs> on the discords <laughs> that a ninth chevron is uh, a theoretical possibility in our seven chevron rating system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, all that is to say I am fully aware of the ninth chevron. This episode does not get nine chevrons. Ooh. <laughs> what a setup. <laughs> this episode uh, has enough beats that aren't perfect yeah. to hit that ninth chevron spot. However, that said, as you talked about, this hits the landing mm-hmm. so perfectly. Mm-hmm. This episode... Uh, Everything drives to the tension and release. So, like, um, when the actors are sitting there and 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 uh, Bregman is given the video of Frazier's uh, death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the they had already shot all that footage and produced it onto that tape. Mm-hmm. And when those actors were watching that in that moment, they were actually seeing that film. And reacting to it live. Wow. That's good. That's a good little, mm, yeah. Um, you know, so like everything moves to this point and it hits it and it nails it. Yeah. So it is not the pinnacle of perfection. It does not reach into that space of nine chevrons. Mm-hmm. But it does get eight. Woohoo! Yeah. It does Excellent. get eight. There are... Uh, and we've talked about that. There are things that, that some of the pacing, some of the things aren't quite right, but it nails the landing and it, you know, the, those, la- to use your, your pommel horse, uh, you know, jump and vault, vaulting mm-hmm. is what it is. That's uh, it. Analogy, um, you know, the, the, the last three steps and the hitting of that springboard and the actual vault itself and the landing all of that is beyond. I mean, it is the height of television. Yeah, it, it's it's the height of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, some of the other stuff, as it leans into that, doesn't quite nail it. So it doesn't get that uh, infamous theoretical ninth chevron, but it does <laughs> for me get an eight. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm really interested to see what other people have to say. Yes. About this one, I. Uh, should have been getting myself prepared. Instead, I was just listening to you talking because that was I was I was captivated, 
absolutely captivated. Where, right. why, why are you telling me? Okay, so I'm going to go to the Twitters. No, I'm not going to yes. post. I'm going to go to the profiles. There we go. All right, we got two comments here. Let's see what we got. Two comments. All right, so we have Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. He says, hi, Brent. Hi, Zach. I predict that Brent had a bagel today. Mm, I didn't. See you back on Facebook. Oh, that's fun. And thank you, Elon Musk, for bringing free speech back to Twitter and standing up for the First Amendment. Kevin, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. The uh, Don't forget that the First Amendment applies to states and governments only, not corporations. And then we got uh, Nathan as well. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Nathan. He just He just replies with a number and a piece of punctuation. You ready? Okay. The number is nine, and the punctuation is a question mark. So Nathan is saying nine, maybe? Nope. You got uh, you got close. Got, got close. close. This is definitely definitely a, a a really good one, but not nine. So, uh, okay. So that is our Twitter stuff. All right. Well, uh, I am on the Facebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook says we have thirty-one comments. Oh my god! Now, now you might need to do abridged versions. A lot of these comments are people conversing back and forth, and so yeah. I'm not going to get um, to all of that. Uh, but we'll start with uh, Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Adrian says, "Great two-part episode where they do a good job of keeping the identity of Doctor Frazier from you." and allowing your mind to wander who had been killed. Mm-hmm. I also enjoy how the reporter changes his view on what story he is trying to tell in the end. Not actually watched the episode in a few years, so this is from memory from the episode teaser. Keeping it short, I would expect this to be a popular episode, so I'm going to be bold and say eights all around. Oh, close. Very close. Very close. Uh, we have Kevin next. Hi, Kevin. Kevin says, hi, Zach. Hi, Brent. Such a good episode. Part one is a bit slow, but part two makes up for it. I wrote down a few things while watching the episode. One, Peridot? Really? That's the first time I've heard that picked as a favorite color. Nothing against it, just (laughs) not a common choice. Nope. Number two, I got an Inception feeling when I was thinking about the actual film crew that we don't see filming the fake film crew that we do see filming Carter. <laughs> yes. Uh, here's a good good aside. Um, some so like the the actor who was playing the the videographer, right? And, and I can't yeah. remember his name. Uh, he, those two actors who were doing that film crew actually got some pointers on how to do that, so it looked mm. real. Yeah, and that was an actual camera, and he was actually filming stuff at times, mm-hmm. and so, at least some of that footage actually was what we see in the final show. Yeah, it uh, it was it was evident, and it, it was quite good. Yep. Uh, number three, has that coffee maker always been in the control room? I don't remember. Number four, <laughs> hey, this is the episode where the Teal'c indeed gift comes from. That's right. I That's noticed true. that too. Yep. Number five, Rowan, is this an accurate depiction of what it's like to discover ancient ruins on an alien planet? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Kevin, I can tell you, uh, no. No, it's not. Uh, And Kevin, I can tell you, yes. Yes, it is. All right. We haven't discovered alien... Anyway, carry on. All right. Well, maybe. Maybe maybe it is. Who knows? That's right. That's my point. (laughs) (laughs) 
Number number six. Hey, it's that probe droid from Empire Strikes Back. Yep. Number seven. I love the part where O'Neill is laying into Kinsey while the alarm is going off. That was fun. Yes, that was fun. Number eight. Does the iris have a voice component? I always thought it was just the palm scan, but it didn't seem to respond until Walter said the open or close. Yeah, part. I didn't know that either. Um, will only time will tell, perhaps. Number nine. This is the first episode to include Robert Picardo as Mr. Richard Woolsey. Mm-hmm. Indeed it is. All right, his final comments. This is a great two-parter, and it's not a spoiler to say that the emotional roller coaster of season seven isn't over yet. Mm. I predict eights from both of you. See you next week. Yeah. Uh, and R in R.I.P. Dr. Frazier. Rest in... Oh, T or P? P. Oh, sorry. That, that, that came across a little funny. Sorry. Right. <laughs> um, Rowan does answer the question to number five. Uh, is this an accurate depiction of what it's like to discover ancient ruins? Uh, Rowan says that it happens all the time. Sure. <laughs> Every time there's ancient alien artifacts discovered on another planet, that is basically exactly how it goes. Um, so, uh, Lisa says... Hi, Lisa. Uh, wow, what an episode. In my opinion, SG-1 at its best. The mm-hmm. acting is incredible. The story is as amazing as it is heartbreaking. It's been nearly 20 years, and I'm still not over what happens to Janet. Mm. Little heart that's broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going for eights all around. Anything mm-hmm. less than that, and you're just wrong, guys. Uh, wrong. I, I'm, I'm happy to be I'm wrong every day. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're giving this a nine. Is uh-huh. that a thing? Can yeah, we make it a thing? Just for this episode? <laughs> Very nice. Um. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... Uh, lots of more comments happening on that. Uh, Jen says, Hi, Jen. Much like Sam in this episode, I am at a loss of words, but feel a ton of feelings. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing the usual, I want to remember Janet Frazier, a character who has been so integral to the past seven seasons of Stargate SG-1. The Napoleonic powermonger, as O'Neill lovingly called her, made full <laughs> use of her five-foot-two-inch fighting height to keep our heroes safe and healthy. When mm-hmm. dealing with the injured, she made no difference between friend or foe. The Hippocratic Oath stood above everything else for her. Mm-hmm. With a big heart and without a second thought, she took in Cassie and gave her a home and a family. She put everyone's health above her own and would do so until her final breath. She was not just a doctor at the SGC. She was a close friend to Sam and Daniel. Could command Jack around and Teal'c had the utmost respect for her. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single person who felt untouched by Janet's death. I still cry whenever I reach heroes because heroes means goodbye to Janet and I certainly don't want to. Mm. Terrell, thank you for, for creating such a lovable, powerful character that just took my heart by storm. To conclude, Heroes is a major moment episode for me and that means eight chevrons simply for the way it is making me feel after years and years and the idea of real-life loss that still makes my heart heavy. For Mm -hmm. me, it is a really integral part of the overall series plot because for the first time, death has caught up to our heroes irrevocably. Mm -hmm. For Brent and Zach, I want to go with 6 for Brent and 7.5 for Zach. Pretty good guesses. Really good guesses. Um, So... We have Susan. 
Hi, Susan. I love the humor in part one as everyone tries to dodge and confound the reporter. Come on, Sam. Come on. Sam looking bad on camera? Really? That That's <laughs> acting at its best. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that it was kind of charming that Amanda Tapping had to pretend to be awkward on camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when we take a dramatic turn in part two, which Stargate does so well, displaying the raw human emotion of a member of the family being killed in action, Daniel's Battlefield film and his scene in the infirmary with the reporter is brilliant storytelling. Not that I wasn't already sniffling, but Sam's eulogy brought me to tears. For the sum of the two parts, I give it an eight. I think I'll save any nines for later episodes. Mm. I think Brent and definitely Zach will do the same. Yeah. Yep. Very close. Yep. Uh, Rowan says... Hi, Rowan. Man, I really love the lighthearted gimmicky episodes of Stargate. Oh, look, they're making a documentary about the Stargate program for posterity. What a neat episode concept. This one features some great one-liners, fantastic character moments, a constellation of guest stars, and excellent comedic timing. Everyone is being kind of grumpy pants about the documentary, except for Sam and that nice Dr. Frazier. She sure is great, isn't she? We haven't seen her in a minute. It's so lovely to finally get a story that puts her front and center what a delightful, silly episode where absolutely nothing bad happens to anyone. Sub. <laughs> Brent and Zach yep. would have to be utterly heartless to give this two-parter less than a seven. These episodes have IMDb ratings of 8.0 and 8.8, .8 respectively, which is five and six and a half chevrons, putting them in the top half and top 10% of Stargate yeah. episodes overall. Yep. 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 Uh, we have Sean. Hi, Sean. Sean says, not a lot happened in part one. Very disappointing. One week wait. It surely could have been a bigger cliffhanger. As a standalone episode, it gets a three Chevron rating. Yeah. Yeah. Part two is epic for many reasons. We have a massive battle. O'Neill gets shot. We have Woolsey playing, played by Robert Picardo, who's a fantastic actor. Although rewatching now, he didn't get much of an introduction. I don't remember believing O'Neill to be dead even during my first watch. I just didn't feel it. The filming of Woolsey interviews uh, was interesting. You never knew who he was talking to. Thankfully, there wasn't an incoming wormhole during Sam's speech. <laughs> that that There's some truth there. Oh my gosh. I was way too much in the moment to even consider that that might have happened. Wow. Yep. Uh, why was there always a reflection slash twinkle in Sam's eye on this episode? I bought a bottle of wine to watch this tonight. I welled up again when they said the baby was called Janet. Uh, that was a pretty heartfelt mm -hmm. Uh Eight out of seven all around. I hope they use the footage from this episode if new releases of Stargate show a public release of the Stargate program. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, we have Paula. Hi, Paula. I think Paula might be new, so I don't welcome, remember Paula. saying hi to Paula before, yeah. Hi, Brent and Zach, and a big thank you for doing this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Very welcome. So, heroes. I think both episodes balance each other out. They have humorous moments, a sense of wonder and exploration, as well as emotional depth and heartfelt connections between many of the characters. For me, these are the core qualities of Stargate SG-1. As a big Sam Carter fan... I enjoy heroes a lot. There is such a range of expression from her. 
I love it. And as a Sam Jack shipper, I especially love her reaction to the inappropriate interview question, how she breaks cover <laughs> when Jack gets shot, and, of course, their exchange an emotional hug in the recovery room. What I didn't like about that scene was that Cassandra, who just lost her second mom, only gets this, she's a strong kid, she survives, remark in an episode that has an ongoing parent-child theme because of the two fathers on SG-13, I would have hoped for more of an acknowledgement of that kind of trauma for Cassie. Yeah. Uh, I would give the episodes a six Chevron rating, but I would assume Americans, which I'm not, might have an easier time connecting to the patriotic and heroic aspect of the episode. So I expect at least a seven from Brent and Zach, maybe even an eight from one or both. My money is on eight for Zach because he ingested all the love that the fandom has for these episodes over the years. <laughs> is that it? Um, and then uh, she says, sorry for any weird sounding sentences. This is my second language. Uh, I would say, Paula, your language was perfectly fine. It was perfectly fine. Have, and not only that, though. I wouldn't but- have guessed it. Uh, in fact, Carrie responds, says, I wouldn't have known English is your second language had you not mentioned it. Absolutely. But Zach also... Yeah. Yes. Importantly, she got mine exactly right, and she said, and her final final expectation of you was eight. That's true. Meaning she got it right on the money. Paula, you did it. It's you her first it try, right. and she just nails it out of the park. Well done. You get my little booby doos. Okay. We have Leda. L-E-I-T-A. Leda. Hello, Leda. Uh, I'll say later, and if I am wrong, please correct me. Still playing what? Could be lighter. Could be lighter. Um, uh, You know what? I'm going to go with lighter because that second name uh, makes me think maybe maybe it's it's lighter. We'll go with lighter. Okay. Either way, please correct me when I'm wrong. Um, and this is also a welcome to Lida because this is her first yes, welcome. comment. Uh, still playing catch up here. I'm way back at the end of season four, but I just had to jump to the future to comment for these episodes. Mm-hmm. I adore Janet as it seems everyone else does. I always felt they did her a little wrong here with her never being a main cast member, then getting killed off in the middle of the season. I also wish that Cassie was given more than a mention because we have been so emotionally invested in that character too, and it should have impacted the lives of SG-1 to have this teenager out there who is a part of their family. But that none of that, but none of that, uh, but none of that diminishes my love of the episodes. The guest stars, character moments, the technical and behind-the-scenes work, and I have to appreciate television that leaves me a sobbing mess of a girl by the end. Mm-hmm. Seven for Brent. Yep. But I imagine he'll be a little salty about Janet's death, too. <laughs> Eight from Zach, because what? he knows the future. <laughs> we get two perfect guesses? Two of the them. first tries? So, Holy Lida, cow. You get... Holy cow. Uh, yes. All right, so we have James, who says, I'm not over what happens to Janet, and I never will be. Ah, was that in reply to Lida? No, that's his own reply. Oh, hi, James. <laughs> um, and Justin says... Hi, Justin. I had snarky stuff about 
Jane leading an SG team and Artie from Warehouse 13, but this too wonderful of an episode pairing. Uh, eight from both of you. Yep, very close. Very close. And finally, on the Facebooks, we have Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Carrie says, hi, Zach and Brent. I might be too late, but here goes anyway. Um, no, you were fine. You, you got us in. You even got it in before we started recording. Oh, there you go. N- not by a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I love these two episodes. It's got the Stargate humor we all expect, but then it takes a turn that I assume no one saw coming. Not sure how many times I've seen these, but I cry every time the airman and his wife tell Daniel they named their child Janet. Hmm. I think Zach will give these episodes an eight, and Brent mm-hmm. will give a seven. Hope y'all have a great rest of your day. They again, nailed it perfectly. Nailed it perfectly. So wow, Carrie, well you done. also get... <laughs> what you guys don't see is my arms flailing around as we do the little celebratory boop boops. <laughs> like, like Kermit? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> People say I have a Kermit quality. <laughs> Hi, old Kermit Frog here. <clears throat> uh, all right, and now we have some emails. Uh, we start with Kimberly. Hi, Kimberly. Uh, Kimberly actually sent an email for last week and this week, but she just missed it for last week. Oh. Um, um, she says for these two episodes, not sure if you'll watch them as a pair, but you should, and we did. She predicts an eight from both of us, Brent. Yeah, very close. I don't think this episode needs much of an explanation for the ratings. I know you both will dig the camera work and the technical aspects of the production, but more importantly, the feels. Zach might have seen this many times before, but I know this still has to yank on his heartstrings. Not a good standalone episode, as this episode requires having gone through the journey with the team, but for a fan, this is one of the best episodes of SG. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yep, 100%. 100%. Um, We have Dan. Hi, Dan. Dan says, Battery failing. Mega episode anything less than seven is an insult to the most emotional episodes of the franchise. <laughs> Going to yes. race track for a day. Far worse episode with a far better, with a better review next week. That's ah, what he says. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Seriously, battery dying. I don't know how much more I can. <laughs> <laughs> He's done. Uh, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, we have Lydia Ann. Hi, Lydia Ann. Heroes, a big feels episode. Also, a big ideas episode. What does accountability look like? To whom do you hold yourself responsible? Emmett Bregman believes that as a journalist, it is his duty to report on the events that those in power want to hide. Mm-hmm. As a civil servant, Richard Woolsey's commitment is to the taxpaying public that wants oversight for resources used by the government. Mm-hmm. The show has used reporters and the NID to highlight the secrecy and sensitivity of the Stargate program in the past. Here, Bregman and Woolsey's dedication to their respective professions provides a good foil for the grief that oozes off everyone else. Mm. They also anchor the Stargate program in the wider world. The impact of the SGC goes beyond Cheyenne Mountain. It reinforces what we've been known all along. The life and work of Dr. Janet Frazier mattered. Janet Frazier's death matters. Mm-hmm. Great acting, great storytelling, good balance between big meta story events and the personal relationships that centers the character of Janet Frazier. Major Janet Frazier 
was responsible for the medical needs of the members of the SGC. Accountability meant providing that care, even on an alien planet under enemy fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eight from Brent and eight from Zach. Very close. May we all have the dedication of Janet Frazier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And finally, uh, from David. Hi, David. has the saddest of Chevron encoding bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Important note, in Stargate TV canon, there is a ninth Chevron that can be unlocked in extreme situations. It'll be a while until you get to that episode, though. So, this is another big episode, and no doubt you've been recording since breakfast, and now it's probably past lunchtime. It is. Oh, you know it so well. <laughs> this is this is close to our longest episode. Uh, uh, it'll easily, easily be our longest. Uh, certainly our longest of a normal normal recording maybe not oh as yeah, yeah, yeah. Of we had those crazy ones such. where i had to break it apart yeah exactly yeah but yeah uh anyway he continues so you've gone from full and well caffeinated to hungry and decaffeinated by now <laughs> i'm going to try and keep this short because no doubt everyone has already said the things part one fun episode humor jokes good times but with a sense building towards something part two action drama danger and sadness like the somewhat nonlinear storytelling they did here to hide the truth for the big reveal. Brent, six chevrons for part one, because while good, you're not quite where they are going. You're not sure where they are going with it. Eight chevrons for part two, when you find out where they are going with it. Yeah. Story taken as a whole, eight chevrons. Mm. Uh, Zach, same chevron ratings, six for the first, eight for the second, eight for the third, or for the complete uh, because the story holds up well on rewatch and will make you sad every time you watch it. Yep. P.S. This is not my nine Chevron episode. Will there ever be one? Oh, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But very close, David. Very close. And and like you, David, while you are right, this is also not a nine Chevron episode for me. Uh, P.P.S. Uh, next week's title is unfortunate following the events of this episode. Hmm. Uh, okay. And that, those are our predictions. Yes. So thank you, thank everybody. you very much, everyone. And Brent. Yeah. Um, now, it's that time. Uh, and he uh, suggested it. The, the episode for next week is Resurrection. Oh. And, and, and I, will, I will spoil <laughs> this. Janet's not getting resurrected. Janet is not getting resurrected. Probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't go there with that one. Then. No. Okay. Brent. Yes. What is Resurrection about? Next time on Stargate SG-1, the SG-1 team travel through the gate to find themselves in a strange world. Even though a very critical member of their team has recently passed away, the duty continues. They find themselves face-to-face with just a a terrifying-looking creature that is absolutely just, just, just frightening to behold. But yet, instead of being a complete and utter just powerhouse of danger to them this creature seems to be somewhat affectionate well this is delightful now this is not a sentient creature in any sense that we seem to think about it but it is seemingly indicative of what they might be able to find on this planet a little further in they find a particular plant that is just beautiful to behold and a very quick little glance at it reveals that there seems to be a lot of dead things around it that's weird but then one by one, these things seem to pop up and start to fly around again. What? What is? What is this? What is this going? What is this happening here? A little further down the line, 
we find uh, uh, we find a, 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 a small civilization, a little tiny town, and it seems that people are there. And hey, let's go say hi. Oh, hello, hi. We're SG one. Nice to meet you. And uh, somehow the conversation of uh, how long you guys been here? And oh, it's been a long time. Yeah. Oh, how old are you? Oh, carry the one. I'm gonna be two thousand seven hundred eighty-three years this year. What? What? Have they found the actual? Wait a minute. We did find that, quote, fountain of youth from before. Is this all connected? Have they discovered the source of that ancient technology? What? Perhaps we have. Join us next time on Stargate SG-1. Resurrection. Hmm. Well, Brent. Yeah. um, I I will say this, that next week we do go to a strange world. Yes, good, good. Um, Uh, What about everything else that I predicted? Well, less so. Okay. All right. Um, shall we watch the promo? Yeah. Yeah, let's get into that. All right. I'm going to hit play now. Next time on Stargate SG-1. What is this place? An abandoned industrial complex. Near as we can tell, it was home to a rogue NID sleeper cell we've been trying to locate for over a year now. Mm, told you it was a strange one. <laughs> what is the secret yes. of the NID cell? And who is Anna? Dr. Kefler, this is Major Samantha Carter of the Stargate program. That's right. Are you ready to tell us about the girl? Is the truth out there for SG-1? It's all next time on Stargate SG-1. What? Wow, that's that's kind of intense. Yeah. All right, okay. So... Yeah, no no, no strange new world, no no fountain of youth, no... no well, I, horrifying it's not future. a strange new world, but it definitely is a strange world. strange world, world yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, yep. Yep. Thank you, David, for putting the promo yes, together for that. Yes, thank you, David. Uh, that's appreciated every single week. Uh, thank you very much for all of you who gave comments. If you have other things you have to say, you please do so by emailing us at walkingthroughthestargate@gmail.com. You can, of course, go to the Twitters at Stargate Walking or the Facebooks or the Discords or the Patrons if that's your bag and that's what you want yep. to do. All that stuff. That's wonderful. Uh, we're going to bring this up to a close because it's been a long episode. And sure with has. that, I say, I'm Zach. <laughs> I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home.